Natalia, it's me, it's Boris, it's Boris, it's Boris, it's Boris, hello. Welcome to the Flick Lab once again. <laughs> this time we're going to continue our James Bond marathon and we're going to have a bit of a different group of people here tonight. Well, we have Tom Frankland, of course, our regular guest, but also Matt, Mr. Matt from the Suits of James Bond. Welcome. Hello. Yeah, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us. We're going to have a little, little bit of a dive into the Suits of James Bond as well as it happens. And of course, we have our Ever reliable co-host Henrik here. How are you, Henrik? I, I'm. I'm actually. I I ran to the recording booth straight from the from the actors training course. So I, at at this at this point in in time and space, I'm I'm in that murky middle ground of being hyper as hell and at the same time just you know waiting when that adrenaline rush finally goes off and I I get that sinking sensation of tiredness oh well you should try what i just did before starting this i'm already shaking here in the booth because i drank two red balls so let's see how this goes I, I i was expecting that the answer to this question is is cocaine <laughs> <laughs> not not quite at least not yet okay and tom how's the weather there our weatherman it's very dark it's very dark and oh, rainy want to get in details maybe not in this episode precipitation yeah that's all you need to know all right <laughs> uh, let's talk about a little bit about the the suits of james bond that you are running you have indeed ha have been running this this website for about 10 years is that right almost almost 10 years yeah, it's been over nine years already um so it's, it's been a long time when i started this site i kind of i wanted just to have a, to, to come up with a catalog of all of james bond's outfits and just about all of them are are our catalog through the site. You can read about, read what James Bond wears in just about any scene of the series. And uh, after that, he, I mean, I kept it going. I wanted to, I've written about some, a few other spies or, or about, I've written about some of the James Bond actors and other roles, what they wear. I try to always relate it back to Bond whenever I can. Um, but then I also explored just different methods that James Bond uses and how he dresses just to, um, examine the methods that he uses when when picking out his clothes and what what it really means to what James Bond style means um, and just different ways on how he wears his clothes just to get a full understanding of what James Bond style is but how did it kind of start so was it the moment like nine years ago when you started to get more self-conscious about your clothing and then you realized that, oh, you have all this fancy clothing in James Bond, so maybe I'll look for inspiration there, and then it just all came naturally, or... Well, it started long before that, because um, I used James Bond uh, for, for style inspiration for... Uh, starting since I was, I was a young uh, kid, and mm. at that time, I didn't really know that much about clothing, and as I learned more about clothing, I would look more closely at the James Bond films, 
to see what he's actually wearing because you know so we can look at a suit and say oh well this is this is the color he's wearing it with this color shirt he's wearing it with this color tie but but there's so much more to it than that and as i learn more about what those things were i can look back at this at the films and see more about what the clothes really are more detail in the clothes and uh after after years of really examining james bond's clothes and still wanting to know more, I, you know, the internet was now around. I could look up, I could try to find out what James Bond's wearing on the internet, but there wasn't a resource that told me what I was looking for. And I figured you might see a lot of other people who want to know what James Bond wear is wearing in certain scenes, what his outfit is. And um, now there was James Bond Lifestyle, which is still a, a brilliant website. But it, it covers more of the more, the more modern products that James Bond wears. It doesn't really go into about James Bond's sense of style. So I came up with a website to tell people, share with people this knowledge that I had uh, learned about clothing and about James Bond's clothes. So I, I thought it would be a great way to, um, you know, just to, to start a community, to, to share my knowledge with people. And um, it's been growing ever since. Yeah, those clothes clothes must have uh, cost a fortune for you during the whole nine years. I wonder if it's like more for for you sharing the knowledge that you get the energy from running this, or what's what's driving you? Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't I haven't bought all all of James Bond's clothes. <laughs> I um I've, I've bought a lot of clothes. I've been gifted a few clothes, but overall, I've um I just keep running this to um just to keep things going with the community, to, to be a part of the community, to allow others to, uh, to learn and, and uh, kind of just to learn what I've learned. Yeah. So, guys, Goldeneye. Yeah, Timothy Dalton's latest. Oh. Oh, oh was not, since the bugger actually did not sign the contract. Yeah, that bugger. Actually, I am a little bit unclear of what happened there. I, I know that Timothy Dalton... I didn't sign it, but I also heard that Cobb Broccoli insisted that Dalton would be doing at least three or four or five more James Bond films. That's the at, at least the official story, and and the story according to Dalton himself, who also has elaborated that the reason why he didn't sign and return to franchise was because the way how films and film franchises worked had change during his absence or during that time gap between License to Kill and GoldenEye. In, mm. And the change meant that when GoldenEye was was in development, it no longer was possible that, that you would return to franchise as the main franchise lead, in this case as James Bond, and simply do one film and not sign up to do multiple films. In Dalton's case, if I remember correctly, the amount that was required was five movies. And Dalton was unsure, does he really want to do five more James Bonds? Yeah, that's quite understandable. Like, that's... Well, it's good to know that it probably wasn't Broccoli's, like, crazy idea. That's kind of like an ultimatum that you probably won't accept anyway, so... But were you expecting someone else, like the teaser trailer for the film... Says, Brosnan comes to the screen to close up and asks, were you expecting someone else? So were you? Yes. No. Okay. Uh, oh. Brosnan had been in circulation and in talks 
for becoming James Bond for quite some time. And to be completely honest, I didn't even follow the James Bond hype spear as, as when GoldenEye was coming out and when the hype for GoldenEye was going on. So I, I didn't have this, oh my god, Brosnan is gonna be the new Bond, how does this affect the franchise, what does this mean, the character of Bond experience that some fans most likely did have. Yeah, there was one uh, fan review on IMDb, and he addressed this where you're expecting someone else. And apparently, he was in the theater shouting that, Yes, I actually was. He was, <laughs> of course, a huge Timothy Dalton fan. What about Matt? Were you expecting someone else? <laughs> I think at that point, I was, I, was, I was rather young at the time. I, uh, I was not following James Bond so closely. If, if I was expecting anyone else, it probably would have been Sean Connery. Yeah. But I think I think uh, at that point, I, I think a lot of people actually were expecting Brosnan after he missed out on the role in 1986 when he was originally yeah. hired to be James Bond. He, I think a lot of people did expect him, and people were very happy to see him as, as Bond at the time. Most people in America were. Yeah, that's, that was probably going to happen somewhere in the Bond pipeline. Anyway, there was also Martin Campbell whose thoughts as a director when jumping into this project was, quote, if we don't get this right, the series is dead. That's kind of a, sounds like a hyperbole. We all know that License to Kill was really not successful in the States. And there were a lot of summer movies in 1989 that were kind of a high profile. So it was easy for License to Kill to get lost in the sea of great films that summer. But it was overall successful around the world. Made like, what was it, over $150 million anyway, and the budget was around the $32 million mark. Yeah, and, and Bond as a franchise wasn't even caught up to questioning in at this point yet. There was the moment when the talks about whether or not is James Bond still current as a character were up and going, and that did happen on Brosnan's run, but when when GoldenEye was coming out, that still wasn't the issue. Like, Bond was still hot currency. Yeah, probably. But there were a lot of fears from the filmmaker's side that now since the Cold War is over and the Berlin Wall has been crumbled down, that these are different times and somewhere of the mind that maybe James Bond does not belong to the 90s anymore. But he's still here. Still here. So He, he is and he is not. I mean, there is some truth to that, that that sentiment that James Bond didn't belong into the changing times. Because the way how Bond has carried on in the franchise and, and with the audiences is through constant process of change. That is true. And that is actually how they approached the whole scenario. Okay, so Cold War is over. All right, so how is this going to show up in the screenplay? How are we going to drive this towards the 90s? You know, I think it was very interesting that they when they start GoldenEye out in the, during the Cold War. It's set in 1986 at the beginning. True. They very obviously try to show us how Bond has transitioned from from then until 1995. M makes comments to Bond about it. Is it too obvious that they're trying to to make Bond relevant in this film? In my opinion, no. I don't know too much, but it's uh, perfectly obvious throughout the movie that it's completely self-aware about what it feels that it has to do 
to establish James Bond to the 90s, address the ladies, to bring the feminism into the picture much stronger than before and address head on that even even the makers think that uh, he's a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, which was actually mm. a quote said by some uh, writer in the press. Then it was used in the script to just, you know, grab the bull by the horns or whatnot. However, nothing really changes in relation to his misogynism. Unfortunately not, and nothing really changes all around with, with the character of Bond. There's, there's a lot of problematic elements in, in Bond's character, and some of them are actually being brought up to question in GoldenEye, and some of them are being addressed. Like, for example, Bond's rather complicated relationship with, well, basically everyone who somehow betrays him, and the loneliness that comes with Bond's lifestyle. But once again, the franchise doesn't actually take a hint from those individual moments. They are worded out, but nothing really physically changes. Okay, let, Henrik, let's talk about Martin Campbell first. So what do we do, know about Martin Campbell? Uh, you can open this one. Go ahead. Well, of course, he's known for Mask of Zorro. He's also known for directing Casino Royale. So he has basically brought James Bond to the 90s and again to the 2000s. Also responsible for Vertical Limit. So a lot of these, you know, successful action films, maybe not very acclaimed, not very good movies. They, they are not Green Lantern tier masterpieces and cinema legend. But he's also known for being pretty hard on the actors and uh, all the crew just pushing it all the time to make the product better and better and better. And this was really obvious during GoldenEye. He seemed to be under a lot of stress. Like, if you look at some of the footage from the set, for, for example, from the ship in Monaco, it seems like he's going completely crazy there. Curses like a sailor. You know, one, one thing that I like that he did, um, just uh, two years ago, he, he did a fantastic film starring Jackie Chan and Pierce Brosnan called The Foreigner. Have you seen uh, that? No, no, I haven't checked that one. Yeah, that was the last thing I saw that he did, and I thought it was fantastic. It, it was not quite as heavy on the action because you have two stars who are uh, you know in their 60s but um, there is some action I think it's a very exciting movie a very interesting and intriguing film and uh, I think it might be my favorite thing that I've seen Martin Campbell do I, I thought he I thought he did a fantastic job he worked really hard to to make a compelling film yeah I think he can be very effective as a director when he wants to be or is allowed to be Henrik, what do you think? Maybe we should start already with the clothing then. Yeah, fine. Yeah. All right. Let's do that first. Then we will kind of backtrack and go back to where we were in the scene by scene. Is there something from the Argangelsk, from the beginning of the film, the pre-title sequence that you would like to say about the clothing of the characters? I, I think we're, we're seeing James Bond in something quite different in this opening scene. We're seeing him in, in this tactical gear you know, in a military jacket, military trousers, an assault vest. He, these are things that we don't usually associate with Bond. We, he's usually wearing more conventional clothing, you know, more civilian clothes. And here we're seeing him dressed up for a, a mission in a more military fashion. And I think this really sets the tone for Goldeneye. We're seeing a more militaristic Bond. We're seeing Bond who's very much prepared for intense action in a way that we've never seen before. 
What did you think about the kind of modernization of Timothy Dalton's dressing as James Bond? Because clearly it was the intent and also Timothy Dalton's will to kind of update sort of the clothing of James Bond. And he's wearing this, you know, everyday kind of jackets and... Uh... Yeah, with, with Dalton in the Living Daylights, we're seeing somewhat of a... Well, with, with his tailored clothing, with the suits, with, with the sports coats, the dinner jackets in uh, the Living Daylights, we're seeing... Somewhat of a return to the to Connery style. It's a, it's definitely more traditional than we've seen with a lot of Moors. It's a bit more more old fashioned and more conservative than than what we saw with a lot of Moors clothing. But but then in, in License to Kill, we're seeing um, more casual clothing to to suit the, uh, the the warmer setting. We're seeing him in in um, in more fashionable clothing. I think that has more to do with the costume designer who really wanted she she wanted to dress him in pastels just like she addressed the uh, the characters in Miami Vice and Dalton actually wanted to bring that back to um, a bit more of a traditional bond look with with navy suits not not with um white suits or pink suits so Dalton didn't really have that much input in the clothes but he he kind of tried to keep them under control and keep them somewhat Authentic to Bond as much as he could, considering um, the the trends of the time. Now with with Brosnan, we, you know we have a, a new costume a new costume designer, Lindy Hemming, who wants to um, make him seem a bit more traditional, dress him more at, like like an international businessman. So he's he's not looking quite as English as say um, the Bonds through Roger Moore did. But he still has a bit of an English touch, even though he's wearing Brioni suits. Okay. The way I feel is that after Timothy Dalton, this kind of a modernization is pretty pretty clear from the clothing of James Bond. It kind of continues here in GoldenEye. Uh, what, what do you think about this uh, car chase scene with the Ferrari 355? Oh, yes. The, the car chase with the Aston Martin and the Ferrari. So you know, we're seeing Bond in, uh, I mean, dressed down. And we don't actually see Brosnan dressed in casual clothing, he's either dressed in in, in a uh, in a very fancy suit, or he's dressed in some kind of tactical gear, like like we just saw in the opening of GoldenEye. But here he's he's dressed uh, very elegantly. He's wearing a you know a navy cashmere cable knit sweater, a uh, you know a, a French blue shirt, a a day cravat, which is a bit unusual for Bond, maybe a little flashy. Um, but he looks, I think he looks very. You know, he looks cool. He looks relaxed. He looks elegant in this scene. It's not what we're used to actually seeing on Brosnan overall, but it works for him. It works for the scene. Yeah, it's a kind of fun to start to explore clothing by yourself a little bit more, and then you start to notice yourself all these details in these James Bond films that you have been looking at for like thirty years, and then you then you're starting to notice like, oh, this jacket is buttoned in the wrong way or something like huh. that. Oh yes, I mean for me, I looked at I looked at James Bond's clothing as a way to inspire myself about how to dress. I wanted to to get some inspiration. I wanted to dress better. I looked to Bond for that. And uh, I looked, I looked at all of the Bond, all of the Bond outfits, to, you know, just to figure out, to get my own sense of style, and to to figure out how I should dress. And uh, this, you know, this, this scene with the cable knit sweater was something that um, inspired me a lot because I wanted, I, 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 I don't get to wear suits all the time like James Bond does, and um, 
the casual wear was 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 um was very important because it's it related more about to how my life was. Then we get to the casino scene, of course, where we get to the more I suppose traditional dinner jacket. Any thoughts about this suit? Yeah, so I think we're seeing something. We're 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 seeing a new take on the classic dinner jacket because we've never seen James Bond wear um, a three-piece dinner suit before. We've never seen him with a waistcoat. We've seen him on very rare occasion with a cummerbund. Usually he doesn't wear any kind of uh, waist covering, no no waistcoat, no cummerbund. Now he's been wearing cummerbunds more frequently, but this is this is the first time we've seen him with a waistcoat. And th- this is actually a look that we that we saw this this almost the same look we saw in Pierce Brosnan in the first episode of Remington Steel. Oh, really? Over 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 a decade earlier, he wore an almost identical outfit the same style shirt same style dinner jacket and waistcoat he he's so i don't know if this has to do if, <laughs> if this is part of brosnan's personal taste though it, it did sound like that um the costume designer wendy hemming had most of the input with uh, brosnan's clothes but i do find it a very interesting comparison to look back at what brosnan wore in 1982 to see him wearing something almost exactly the same um some uh, 13 years later in goldeneye yeah, it's no wonder that the producers found him kind of an interesting, interesting uh, proposition as James Bond. Seeing him in such outfits probably helps. But Lindy Hemming, yeah, she made all the Brosnan films, isn't that right? Yes, yeah, she was the costume designer for all four Brosnan films, as well as for Daniel Craig in Casino Royale. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So you decided to join our James Bond run uh, at this point for Pierce Brosnan. Is there any uh, specific reason? Are you a big uh, fan of Pierce Brosnan's outfits? I do like Brosnan as an actor. I like his portrayal of Bond. I like his outfits. Although I, I joined this because th- th- this is when you invited me to join. Yeah. Yeah, we had discussions before, but uh, you have been a busy man. So the life goes. Yes, yeah, so th- th- this is the point that I made it on to the to the podcast. Maybe you're happy that you didn't have to talk about Timothy Dalton's uh, suit in the casino scene in License to Kill. Right. I, I don't have such great things to say about that one. Um, I do I do find that License to Kill probably uh, the lowest point of James Bond fashion in, in the series. Yeah, isn't it kind of the most... It, it's very much an 80s films when you look at it. In many ways, I get this feeling. Maybe it has yes. aged quite a lot out of the Bond films. Sure has. But I would also say, say that GoldenEye feels very much like a 90s film yes. as well. So it, GoldenEye is very much of its time, especially with the, uh, with, with the, the music by Eric Serra. It feels, yeah. it feels dated. That, that music, it gives it a very unique feel and it helps the film to stand out. It gives it a very unique identity, which, which is very important for anything. I think having... Um, a, a, an identity all of its own um, is one of the most important things in any in, in any type of art form and anything but it does make it very much of its time yeah let's talk about eric Serra for for a second so for a long time john barry of course has scored a lot of the bond films from the very early ones on but uh now he he's away. He did his last soundtrack for *The Living Daylights*. *License to Kill* was done by Michael Kamen, famous for *Die Hard* as well. And now we have Eric Serra. He seems to split the opinion quite in half. In my opinion, there is some interesting sounds in the soundtrack, but it lacks maybe the bombastic 
a huge element of the John Barry scores, which I am missing here, and also maybe some of the rhythm that John Barry has, or even David Arnold for that matter. Oh, right. But um, I, and I, I think Eric Serra's it's a sound doesn't sound as big because, you, because it's, it's so electronic. Electronics tend to sound smaller than um, real instruments. There's, with the electronics, there's no real air moving. There's, there's, no, there's no human feeling in there. So you, all you have is really a, uh, you, can, you can raise the volume, you can decrease the volume, you can make it faster or slower, but there, there's a human element that electronics lack. Yeah, and no, I think it uh, it doesn't sound so full. Then there is less instruments, so it sounds emptier. Yeah, yeah. Eric Sara was kind of a they wanted to try something different in Goldeneye and see how it goes, and apparently it didn't work out because they went to David Arnold. Yeah, well, I do believe that they had initially gone to John Barry for Goldeneye, and he um they, he they didn't want to pay him as much money as he wanted. Oh. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think it wasn't supposed to be exactly the swan song in The Living Daylights. It just was unavailable, and when they found David Arnold, he was gone. Right, well, they found David Arnold because John Barry had recommended David Arnold. True, yeah. And John Barry was their first choice for for a long time, and he he didn't really want to do James Bond anymore. He felt like he was, I think he felt like he he had had run its course, it wasn't. It wasn't really for him anymore. He'd run out of ideas. Although yeah. I think with with Living Daylights, he had shown something new. He had really brought brought a lot more to the table with, with Living Daylights than he had in a long time. That's true. Uh, there are these electronic elements in the Living Daylights, which makes it sound kind of interesting. But you still have the traditional orchestra there. Yeah, it's all there except you just add you just added an extra layer of electronics. So when yeah. when I think of what John Barry might have been able to do for Goldeneye, I look at um, the the film uh, um, a film starring Sylvester Stallone called The Specialist uh, from 1994. Mm. John Barry had scored this film in a, in a very James Bond manner. It's a it's a spy film. Um, the, the the music has a bit more a bit more old fashioned, I'd say, than than what John Barry was doing for Bond in. Um, in the 80s, you know, um, I think his sounds for uh, for A View to a Kill and for The Living Daylights are more modern than what he did in The Specialist. But I I do think that John Barry could have written a very appropriate score for Goldeneye in along the lines of The Specialist, and maybe if he had also included some of the electronics that he was doing with The Living Daylights, but in a more modern way. Yeah, for a long time I was wondering why John Barry would say that The Living Daylights is... If I remember correctly, he said that Living Daylights is his least favorite Bond soundtrack. And uh, I think it has something to do when I started to listen to it more closely. And uh, I was <laughs> playing on GarageBand, trying to imitate some of the parts um, to to do some funny stuff for myself. But uh, then, then I realized that there's a lot of parts that are just played on different scales all the time. So I guess from a musician's perspective, that may sound lazy for him i don't know but it works and it's it can be truly enjoyable well barry was actually somewhat of a lazy composer overall (laughs) he he reused a lot of the same compositional techniques after the 1970s he rarely did something fresh and new for him though his music always sounded beautiful was always perfect for whatever he wrote it for yeah. Um, but I think the real reason why he doesn't like the Living Daylights is because he was not a fan of working with Aha. 
he he uh, <laughs> yeah he hated he hated the band he hated working with them that's the why, that's the reason why he doesn't like the living daylights i i because yeah. he put a lot of effort into that music more effort than he had into most scores um of the 1980s um, so i i i think he 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 did a fantastic job with that score and i i think he's I don't think he would have been um, disappointed with the music. It was more of just working with Aha that soured the entire experience of that film for him. Yeah, I guess you're right. But Matt, what is Brosnan wearing on the Manticore yacht? So he's wearing something very appropriate for a yacht. He's he's dressing as, just as, as anyone aboard a yacht would be expected to wear. He's wearing a double-breasted navy blazer with, with brass buttons. This was a look, a very traditional look that um, was very popular in the in the 90s. I mean, in New York, where I grew up, everyone wore a navy blazer. That was the go-to thing to wear when dressing up, no matter what your age was. For for little kids, for old men, everyone wore a navy blazer. Usually single-breasted, but a lot of people did have double-breasted blazers, just like Brosnan's. Probably not as fancy as Brosnan's Brioni blazer. But you know, like uh, I think that when you see him wearing this on the yacht, it's it's just it's it's this is where it belongs in Monaco on, aboard a yacht. There's there's no better place to wear a navy blazer, and so he's wearing it in a very casual way here. He's wearing it unbuttoned, which I think looks a little sloppy. But he's wearing it with a blue shirt, khaki trousers. They look it looks um it's a very classic naval look, or at least a casual naval look. Yeah, this is something that uh, Roger Moore was wearing for sure in *The Spy Who Loved Me*. Yeah, Roger Moore had a single-breasted blazer there, but so, but um, like Brosnan, he did wear double-breasted blazers in *The Man with the Golden Gun* and *Moonraker* and *In mm. Your Eyes Only*. And he oh, yeah. wore he wore this is the this this was Roger Moore's look, basically his his retirement look. He always wore after he was Bond, he always wore a navy blazer. For um, a while after he was Bond, it was mostly single-breasted blazers, but then uh, for about the last decade of his life, whenever he went out, it was 90, like 99% of the time he was wearing a double-breasted blazer, very much like this. He even had one or two Brioni blazers, just like Brosnan did. He had, he had many, many blazers in his closet, from, from uh, bespoke tailors, from ready-to-wear brands. But um, he did have some Brioni, just like Brosnan. Okay, now we move to Severnaya. Any thoughts on Boris Grishenko's beautiful smiley t-shirt? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is not my area. <laughs> uh, also kind of interesting to point out, which is probably kind of out of everyone's fields here, but uh, Natalia, interestingly, is wearing the same clothing pretty much throughout the entire film. Very unusual for a James Bond film to have the leading lady wearing the same. You know, I've never noticed what she wears. Yeah. She, she doesn't wear anything that stands out. You know, she, she's not one of those, um, she, she, she's no honey rider. No, it's but, something you know. casual from, from the 90s, from the Russian closets, I guess. Right. So now we're in the M scene with this bluish tie and uh, anything about that. So this is an interesting outfit. Um, we're seeing Bond in a um, in a in a uh, Glencheck suit. Suit. It's, it's a fine Glencheck. You don't. It's hard to make out the Glencheck unless you're seeing the suit up close. But the, the check is made up of, um, of of blue and sand colors. So 
the, the two colors are opposite colors on the spectrum. It's something I wrote about on my blog recently with combining cool and warm colors together. So we're seeing these two colors kind of um, opposites but combined together to, to make a very uh, neutral looking outfit. And, and interestingly enough, the, the tie, we see, basically see blue and um, gold or kind of brownish colors in the tie. And those are the colors that are also in the suit. It's a very interesting way that Lindy Hemming coordinated the outfits. She very carefully coordinated Brosnan's colors, and this is a combination that we see a lot on Brosnan. These two opposite colors combined together to, uh, to make a very uh, neutral-looking outfit, a very, um, I don't know how I'd say it, but I mm. think it's, uh, it's kind of showing two different opposite ends of, of, of the man, of the character, but but in all but all combined in a cool way. Is there anything to say about the side actors dressing? For example, we see Tanner also here, and moments later we we see Mishkin. Goldeneye is one of those films where I I actually have not paid much attention to how anyone else dresses other than Bond. Yeah. But I think that's actually an important thing because you want Bond to stand out more than most of the other characters. The um, and I have looked a little at what what um, Alec wears, what what Zukovsky wears, but Brosnan as Bond stands out. He commands the screen, and mm. the clothing has a lot to do with it. But also, it's also Brosnan. He he's the main reason why we we're we're looking at him. He's the main character. You know, we don't. This is not mm. a film where you have a flashy villain. You know, like you don't you don't have like like Goldfinger was an incredibly fat flashy villain. You know, he commanded the screen just as much as Sean Connery did. I think here now here here Bond is the focus pretty much all the time, and that's important because Goldeneye had to establish a new James Bond actor. You, you wanted him to be front and center. You wanted the the, uh, the audience to uh, to really like him to to notice him and to believe him as Bond. And they did whatever they could, I think, to make sure Brosnan was Bond. Yeah, there's a interesting contrast of colors in the Q scene in his yet again new suit here. Yeah, it is interesting that, uh, again, they have a new suit for him. And, and this suit, we actually see him wear the same suit again when he arrives in Russia. So, but th this suit is a... Probably a bit more traditional for Bond. It's a darker three-piece suit, although it does have a, it's a window pane. It has a very subtle window pane pattern in it, which which was a new thing for Bond. We hadn't seen Bond wearing a straight-up window pane suit before. I think the the um, yeah, the, the tie is a uh, it's a subtle tie. It's a bit more subtle than the last one we just saw him in. So regarding your work, so you are a web designer. I am a web designer. Do you frequent some office and do you prepare for, for any office in kind of flashy suits or do you want to put it more down to earth, something less Bondian perhaps, or how do you approach it? <laughs> so yeah, I, I do work in an office. Now my office, people dress all different ways in my office. Some people are dressing more in a business casual manner and some people are dressed very casually. Yeah. Um, for me, I mean, some people occasionally wear business dress, but those are the people that meet with outside clients. For me, I don't. I don't meet with anyone from the outside. I'm. I'm working on a team of people with uh, within the organization, so I don't have to dress up. 
to really impress people, but I do dress, I dress in a, in a way that, that usually has some kind of Bond inspiration. Sometimes it's combining some of Bond's dressier and more casual outfits. James Bond shirts are one way that I often bring, I bring James Bond into my own wardrobe. I wear a lot of shirts with, with cocktail cuffs. You know, this the, the fancy shirt cuff that Sean Connery, Roger Moore, and now Daniel Craig have worn in the Bond series. It's like a, um, it's, it, it's, it fastens with buttons, but it, it, but it folds back like a double cuff, like a French cuff. So it's an interesting style. I think it's a very versatile type of cuff, and it's very interesting. Occasionally someone notices that it's an unusual cuff. It was a pretty interesting situation when uh, I moved to Poland. I live in Warsaw, and uh, I had no idea what would be the the standard way to dress in office. And then I just decided, okay, we're going to go a little bit fancy here. And I appeared there and I was shocked when I saw my boss and he was dressed up in this, you know, Adidas college fleece pants <laughs> and wearing a cap and uh, uh, very casual uh, tennis shoes. <laughs> it was the weirdest boss dress sense that I've ever seen. Wow. Yeah. But at least I had no pressures about dressing up. No, that's good. Yeah, my, my boss dresses uh, in a business casual way with a nice shirt, some trousers, but not in a suit. Most people don't wear suits in my office. So, But I feel like I try to dress up as much as I can without looking out of place. Because you know, you I think you want to fit in with the culture of your office as much as you can. You don't want to um, seem like you don't belong there. Right. Anything about the St. Petersburg airport? Yeah, so we get to see Bond now in a uh, in a cashmere overcoat. Now this, this coat, it's a beautiful coat, very luxurious. It has a bit of a 90s touch, just as actually everything else does. The the buttons on the coat, just as they are in James Bond suit jackets, are are lower than you than than you might expect than they traditionally would be. With a suit, I can understand it for a style. With with an overcoat, low buttons don't quite make sense to me because the lower the buttons are, the more your chest is exposed. And Bond's chest is, has a, is very much exposed, although he even wears his coat open. So maybe maybe he's a little warm. Maybe Bond doesn't need to wear a coat for warmth, and he's just wearing it for style. That's kind of the impression I get when Bros whenever Brosnan wears a coat. He's wearing it more for the style than it, than he is to keep warm. Because if, if I was in St. Petersburg, I'd probably want to button that coat up and you know, wear a scarf and stay stay warm. So, <laughs> so we're seeing Bond dress really dress, wear it just just to wear it. But I guess that that, that is Bond sometimes. He he's not always wearing things for a practical reason. He's Definitely he's not. wearing it for style. He he's he wants to show off style. Coming all clean out out of the action scene and just straightening the tie like in St. Petersburg here. <laughs> yeah. Have you gone so deep in the clothing that uh, you have something to say about the swimming shorts at the spa? <laughs> that, that was the last article I, I wrote on an outfit from GoldenEye. Whoa, okay. So uh, Just uh, what two months ago, I actually published an article on that one. I guess I'd realized that was something I had missed. We don't really see the shorts very much. But the nice thing is they, they are, they're very classic swim shorts. The, the, they're timeless. They're not baggy. They're not too tight. They look like they're, they're just practical swim shorts. They, they must be comfortable. I mean, I've certainly had shorts very similar to these in my own wardrobe without even looking 
for Bond at Bond for inspiration here. They're they're just they're just very standard, but probably nothing especially luxurious. I don't know what brand they're from. I've not been able to to really nail that one down. But I don't think it even matters because they're just supposed to be ordinary swim shorts, black, plain black, very uh, unassuming. What about this one uh, in the interrogation room or in the statue park? It's the same. Yes, yeah, so I think this is actually one of the best suits of uh, the film. This this blue bird's eye suit from Brioni. This suit was originally made as a three-piece suit, but we only see him wearing it as a two-piece suit in the film. I think a three-piece suit probably would have been overkill in in this in these scenes in the action scenes. Just it, it would have looked a little bit silly, I think, to see Bond doing all these stunts in in a three-piece suit. I mean, we we can we can suspend our disbelief to see him doing all this stuff in a two-piece suit, which, if you think about it, is a little ridiculous. But I think it's a great it's still it's a great suit, and and this this suit this a um, this the three-button uh, navy bird's eye suit something that we see in all four of Brazen's films. This this is a this this is I think is Brazen's ultimate Bond suit. Oh wow! There's something less being worn in on the beach when there is this dramatic discussion with Natalia. Uh, is it kind of the same, but without wearing all of it? Oh, in that scene? Well, we had seen him before in the um, in the BMW Z3, where he's wearing that um, the tan two-piece suit in, right. uh, in, in the... I think it was linen. But the I think there might be the same shirt and trousers that he's wearing on the beach. Um, I actually can't remember that one for sure. And then we get to... A scene where you definitely see less suits, the bed scene, but then we get to the jungle. <laughs> yeah, in the jungle. So he's he's really dressed up. He's dressed up in a come with kind of a similar way to the way that we see him at the start of Goldeneye. He's wearing yeah. tactical gear. He's wearing something. You know, he's he's dressed more like like um, a hard action hero again. He's, I don't really see this as James Bond. James Bond was never before this. A true action hero, and Goldeneye, as we've seen, turns him into a full-on action hero like like Stallone and Schwarzenegger. Bond is now one of these guys. He he wasn't that before. He wasn't that in the 80s when Stallone and Schwarzenegger were making all their, their all those like uh, you know like Rambo and and um, Predator, Terminator. He but now we're seeing kind of Bond adapting to that type of film, and he has to. To be that kind of character and not look silly, I think he has to somewhat dress like that here. Now, th- this is the outfit that he wears in these final scenes is not something that I I don't believe I've actually covered this outfit on my blog um, mm-hmm. because usually on my blog I'm, my intent is to use Bond for style inspiration to yeah. to use his how he dresses in, in the real world to to uh, take inspiration from that from from Bond in the real world and apply it to us and I can't picture myself. In, in this situation, I don't even know how I could relate this outfit to how a civilian would dress. Because th- this is Bond as a military person. He's, it's just not the Bond that I, um, that I dress like, that most people would probably want to dress like. And I think even now with, with Daniel Craig, we don't see him dressing in these military type clothes. He's, he's usually been, we- he's been wearing casual clothes more, you know, he's been wearing civilian clothes in in a, um, in a in a in a more tactical way at times. Whereas Brazen is really dressing like like he's ready, you know, to 
he's ready to take on an army. Yeah, from reading the comments and everything from your Facebook, it seems that Daniel Craig has had the biggest backlash in his clothing in James Bond history because the clothes are fashionably too tight. And I can I can definitely see the point. Well, you know, I don't know if he is have if he's had the most uh, backlash in James Bond history with the clothes. Roger Moore has faced plenty of it. Plenty of people they okay. don't like they don't like Roger Moore safari um, suits. <laughs> they they don't like uh, his flare trousers. They don't like like the wide lapels and ties. But I don't I don't know how people actually reacted to to Roger Moore's fashions in the 1970s when he was wearing those things. I was not born yet in the 1970s. I was born in the 80s. So yeah. I, I can't I can't say how you know, Moore's clothes were um, responded to at that time. But now with with I don't I don't remember anyone ever actually complaining about Brosnan's clothes apart from them looking too luxurious. Oh, okay. Have you thought about your clothing sense in every practical fashion? Like, do you have a collection of, for for example, hiking outfit? Do you think about that too much, or you just go because nobody's going to look at you much anyway on the trail? Well, say if I'm going hiking, I have hiking boots. I have, um, but you know, I I don't have like specific hiking trousers. Depending on the weather, I might just wear. Um, if it's warmer, I might wear chinos or you know, khakis. I, if it's cold, I might wear corduroy. So uh, and that's kind of how Bond deals with these things. So say like when you see Bond at the um, at the estate, at the Skyfall estate, he's wearing corduroy trousers. He's wearing some some boots that's kind of how i might go hiking i i don't really i haven't done much hardcore hiking yeah but but um um, going hiking for a few hours i I, i'll probably take inspiration from that kind of look and that i was even doing that before bond was i was wearing corduroy before bond was wearing them in skyfall so i kind of kind of sometimes i think about what bond might wear in a certain scenario um, even if he hasn't had had that experience yet. I think it was you writing some article uh, about about going to some kind of a restaurant. Uh, was it in a foreign country for you? And then suddenly the waiter started opening up about, oh, thank God you're wearing something great because usually people come here only in shorts or they don't think about their dress sense at all. Uh, do you want to tell that story if, if, if it was from you? I'm not sure if that was from me. Okay. Um, I, I I usually I mean I it's possible that it's happened, but <laughs> yeah I I certainly try to to dress appropriately when I go out anywhere. I try to um, I don't like to I mean I'm not going I don't I don't if I wear if I'm wearing shorts I'm, I'm on the beach I I don't I don't usually wear shorts anywhere else. Right. So but I I do feel like that is that's an important lesson I think that people should dress to respect um, their surroundings to respect other people when you go to a restaurant mm-hmm. restaurants do appreciate it when you when you dress nicely you will get better service or at least when you get when you walk into the restaurant they'll probably see you at a better table if you're dressed better and mm-hmm. so whenever my wife and I go out we're amongst the best dressed people wherever we go wow and uh, I think that uh, but I, I think it, it just shows respect to uh, to the place that you're going yeah should people be feeling kind of frustrated about the the liberal dress sense that we have nowadays like uh, any thoughts on that should should there be some kind of 
limitations more into the way how people dress or uh, i guess they are always there the you know the the rules but uh, that you don't need to necessarily follow them which is good i would say but uh, gone are the days of yesteryears yeah i think there's plenty of uh, ways we can interpret clothes we don't all have to dress like each other and i think with with a more liberal dress sense that people have today we don't have to dress a certain way for certain occasions like we used to have to. I think when I, I go to the opera frequently and people wear all kinds of things there, usually I'm coming from work, so I'm not dressed up um, in a suit. Uh, if I'm coming from work, because that's not what I would have worn to work. But I, I'll usually you know, make sure I have at least a jacket on and usually put on a tie mm. for when I go out to the opera or to other for other similar types of occasions. But some people do go there wearing, you don't usually see t-shirts. Very occasionally you'll see someone in a polo shirt. People would usually dress up a little nicer than that. But it's not like when back when uh, people, everyone would wear a suit to that to an opera or, or wear a dinner mm. jacket or, or even probably at some point everyone was wearing tailcoats to the opera. Do you um, support dress codes in general? I, I do think dress codes are a good thing because they do... They, I think, a lot of men don't know how to dress when they're going to certain places. They, yeah. most of men don't want to show up somewhere and feel embarrassed because they haven't dressed the right way. I, I think it does help us dress in a way. The, um, at least the dress code tells people what what is to be ex- what what the host is expecting, and um, so we don't have to worry so much about offending them by dressing the wrong way. True that. Is there some kind of all-time favorite suit from the Bond franchise that you would like to mention? I have a few. I've always loved the uh, the three-piece suit at the beginning of Thunderball. It's a dark gray flannel with a very interesting flat-bottomed waistcoat. That's one of my favorites. I love the three-piece suit that George Lazenby wears in On Majesty's Secret Service when he visits um, M's office. For the first time in the film, he's wearing this um, navy herringbone suit. It's, it's beautiful. I think it's one of the best cut suits of the series. I love Roger Moore's marine blue suit in The Man with the Golden Gun, where he's um, in Beirut and uh, at that the uh, the belly dancing club when he meets Saida. Th- those are some of my favorite suits of the series. Ones that really stand out for me. Of course, there's the the famous Glencheck suit. In, um, in Goldfinger, the three the, that light gray three-piece suit that everyone always talks mm-hmm. about, and I think that's Sean Connery had all of Sean Connery's suits are fantastic, and they all tell I think a certain story with his wardrobe. And of course, there's all the there's the dinner jackets, the the Doctor No dinner jacket from the casino, the Goldfinger dinner jacket from the the nightclub, and um, a lot of what Roger Moore wears. There's so many outfits that I have that are my favorites and outfits that I look to for, for when I'm getting new clothes because I, I I often I have my own ideas of, of exactly what I want but they're always inspired by bond and I think that when I when I get a new outfit I kind of think about oh is it like is it something that bond would wear I think it's like it's it's I'm not getting close to copy bond but I'm kind of using bond as a check on my own sense of style just to see um, you know, like Bond really wouldn't wear this if it's not quite right for for Bond. Maybe there's maybe it's not right for me either. That sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes there are things that I that I love that Bond would never wear. 
But you said that yeah. you like uh, Pierce Brosnan in the role of James Bond quite a bit, right? I do like him. Yes, I I do like most of the Bond actors, but I I yeah. sure like I do like Brosnan. I know a lot of people who do not. Yeah, the, it's kind of an interesting touching point actually to discuss the meaning of Pierce Brosnan as a James Bond. Of course, Sean Connery started it all sixties and. Uh, I would say, without doubt, the most loved uh, James Bond of them all. But uh, he, he kind of set the standard back in the day. And then came Roger Moore, which was kind of this more lightweight, maybe more fitting for the 70s, also this kind of a slapstick route that they took, at least in the beginning. And more humor in general, more light. Uh, fun for the whole family, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then we get to Timothy Dalton, who is having, again, a completely different interpretation of James Bond. He's going kind of back to the roots, back to the books. And he had read the books many times in preparation, had read the books with Robert Davi, who was also very familiar with the uh, with the books. And and he had this more, at least in License to Kill, it was this more violent and more realistic and brutal James Bond. And then again, we get to GoldenEye and Pierce Brosnan. So what is Pierce Brosnan doing as a James Bond? Well, how how do you feel? What, what's his place as a James Bond? What what is he doing here? Who is I, he? I do say, I see Brosnan as bringing back some of the more traditional screen elements of Bond. Um, I think he's bringing back a lot of the uh, you know some of the toughness that Sean Connery had, but um, and then some of the lightness that Roger Moore had, which we kind of lost with Dalton. I think he was accepted as Bond because a lot of people did not like Dalton. At the time, I think he's much more highly regarded now than he was when he was Bond. Yeah. But at the time, Brosnan brought a familiarity back to the role that the public wanted, and um, something that um, that that I guess I I certainly uh, I I definitely wanted that at the time. And I try it's probably how I feel now with wanting the next Bond after Craig. I probably want someone who's more traditional in the role, like so somewhat like like another Brosnan type. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that they went the Daniel Craig route because they had the Timothy Dalton run and uh, some would say that it didn't uh, end so well in the box office. And then they kind of repeat it with Daniel Craig. Of course, it, I think it has more humor, maybe more action. It has more jokes. Daniel Craig is maybe like a combination of a bit of a, all of them, in a sense. Somewhat. I think he, but he, he kind of takes, he takes the more, um, the more dark sides of the Bonds and yeah. Not so much the lighter sides of the bonds, yeah. Somewhat, somewhat in a way that Dalton did as well. Whereas Brosnan, I felt Brosnan was quite balanced in his portrayal. He had a lot of the, he had he had some of the darker parts, the the more serious, but he was also fantastic with the quips. He was, he could, he, I, I felt like he could do it all, even though even if even if his his um, the scripts weren't always great, I thought he was. Um, then he did a fantastic job in GoldenEye, but I think he improved in the role after GoldenEye. In GoldenEye, okay. he's I don't, he doesn't seem entirely comfortable in the role. I don't think he he didn't it doesn't seem like he quite owns James Bond yet. Whereas in Tomorrow Never Dies, I I think we do see a different Brosnan. We see one who is more confident. We see one who is he just seems more comfortable in the role and just more relaxed. I always felt that Tomorrow Never Dies was like the kids version of GoldenEye because GoldenEye I guess was more realistic uh, actually in some ways kind of a license to kill in its west there were a lot of moments violent shots that were cut 
to please the ratings so they could get the PG-13 instead of what License to Kill got, which they didn't want the R rating. Exactly. So, so I feel that it's kind of pretty in, in the way of Dalton in some sense still here, but Tomorrow Never Dies is kind of this pretty colors, uh, James <laughs> Bond doing a lot of this unbelievable stuff. Very kids-friendly, I would say. I guess it has to do also with the success of the uh, GoldenEye video game. Who knows? Right. No, the GoldenEye video game... I, I Sometimes I feel like the, the video game has had a, had a much bigger impact than the film did. The video game for uh, you know for that generation, the younger generation at the time, and including myself, it was a way of getting people interested in Bond. Yeah. I, I, and I think the game is why a lot of people actually like the film. I think I think a lot of people were introduced to, to Bond through the game first, and then before they even saw the film. I think a lot of people played that game, had no idea it was based on a film. Maybe they did, but they didn't even see the film. But everyone loved that game. I'll be ashamed to admit that when, because Tomorrow Never Dies was my first James Bond film to see in the theaters, and I kind of at the time I thought that it, yeah, it's one of the best Bond films of all time. But now I have kind of backtracked from that. A bit, but everybody has their opinions. I think there's plenty of Tomorrow Never Dies fans out there. I'm not definitely one of them. No, I, 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 um, I think as, as a film, I'm probably a bigger fan of Tomorrow Never Dies than Goldeneye. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, for me, I, um, well, actually, The World's Not Enough is my favorite Brosnan film. Okay. I think because it feels more like a classic Bond film to me. It, it's, it doesn't have Goldeneye has a dark feel to it um, partially because well it's the lighting's very dark throughout the film the the music has a very um a, a very impersonal sound so i think because of that it gives me a um a very different feeling okay well it's been an absolute pleasure to to discuss the golden eye with you and uh very glad you could join us and show us kind of new frontiers and what to think about when we look at films. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been really great talking with you. Yeah. We have been touching upon Bond's ability to be so posh in every situation he faces, and it was nice that you dropped by and told us yeah. exactly why that is. Oh, and definitely, if you're available for... Something that we are still going through. We are going to check out uh, Die Another Day, uh, Casino Royale, Spectre, and then the new one when it hits the theaters. Okay, excellent. Yeah, let me know what you guys are up to, and if I have time, I'll uh, jump in. Great, super. Okay. During the meantime, our listeners do well to follow your blog. Yeah, please go there. Check it out. Yes, yes. Oh, uh, thanks. And yeah, I'll, I'll be checking out your uh, your podcast more. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. See you later. Thank you Great. so much. See you. Bye. Bye. Okay. Golden knife. Not lace or leather. Gun barrel. Are you guys ready for scene by scene? I guess you can always make excuses not to be. Whether I'm ready or not, it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, you already showed at the gun barrel. So. <laughs> so. <sighs> Let's see how nitty-gritty we're going to get this time. What do you think about the gun barrel? I think, in my opinion, this one was kind of unique. The uh, sound was very different this time. It's very modern, don't you think? Yeah. Or is it very 90s? I don't know about 90s, but it's very different. Yeah, it tries a lot of things. Like There is there a lot more a lot more shadows 
and a lot more reflections in the in the Pierce Brosnan gun barrel. Absolutely. This is the first very, very digitally built gun barrel where you s- start to see this 3D effects now. In License to Kill still, it was this 2D gun barrel, but you had uh, digital composition, as I understand, of the gun barrel. And, uh, but yeah, now it's starting to get fancier in, in this sense. Producer Michael Wilson didn't like the Brosnan standing in the gun barrel, so they reshot it. And it's still a bit Remington steel pose that Brosnan pulls off. Why? I demand an explanation. Well, Brosnan kind of pushes his left leg forward. And when you contrast his turn, when he turns to face the gun barrel just before he fires back, it's it's a bit more softer, the movement. It's, it's not as rough as it was, for example, for Timothy Dalton. Okay, some people who have overexposure for James Bond films have said of Timothy Dalton's gun barrel performance that his legs are in a goofy position. One is in front of the other, and it's not very symmetrical, whereas Pierce Brosnan is standing perfectly in position and uh, shoots the gun perfectly into the center of the camera, which I do like. And there is this, I don't know, robotic, but it's very determined motion when he turns to shoot. And I like that. And I also like this small detail when his suit makes this little flapping just just when he turns. I think it's quite perfect. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little clinically perfect. Yeah. I, I would say that that's kind of the most poserous aspect of, of Grosnan's turn. Yeah, I'm also kind of personally more a fan of the Timothy Dalton gun barrels. I mean, not so much the Living Daylights because they used the fucking age-old same type of music, but License to Kill was fantastic. Michael came and gave it some more much-needed new energy, this very angry, this, all right, now we're ready for battle, let's go. This is the new James Bond film. God damn it, this guy is angry. Out for revenge. I love that gun barrel. Just for that music, I would say. Nerd alert. Let's move on. So we get to Dam. Supposed to be Argangelsk, Russia. But it's actually the Versaska Dam, also known as Contra Dam, located in Lugano, Switzerland, as Tom Franklin has noted. Uh-huh. When Pierce Brosnan appears here for the first time and he's running, he looks like Dalton from behind. It kind of sets up some people for a disappointment because it's not Dalton, but and please note that it's not snowing in this scene. It's not snowing, and it will be snowing when they get to the runway. Indeed. Second note about this is that when he's on top of the dam, then he does a huge bungee jump down, then they go some floors down from the toilet, and again down, and again down, then maybe one floor up, then again down, and then they're in the facility where they set up the bombs. So Bond comes out of there, Again, it goes a little bit down. And then they're on the runway. So, like, there should there shouldn't be any place to go. They should be underground, basically, at this point. Do you think James Bond says a little prayer before he jumps? Because it's kind of a three-second pause where he looks to the heavens. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that could be. I only know that when he was about to jump, and this was only one take, by the way. All the camera angles are one take from that one take. At the same time, someone from the crew realized that this could all go to shit for some reason. He was doing the the cross sign with his hands just moments before. 
Ooh. And what the jumper has told that what his last thoughts were before he jumped was Beavis and Butthead, ladies and gentlemen. Oh. Yeah. Mm. There is a deleted scene of the guardhouse before the jump. This is when he kind of gets through the guardhouse, which you can see actually in the GoldenEye video game very well. Well, of course, it's different, but it, it's there. There's the guardhouse. He sneaks up by the guard, gets the key, gets out, runs the dam. So they just thought that it was completely useless scene, which it is, and just slows down the film. So Bond goes on and purves on some poor Russian soldier, or, or, or poor Soviet in a toilet. Welcome to Toaleta. This was a real toilet in the Leveston Rolls-Royce facilities, actually. They deemed that the 007 stage, which was built for the Spy Who Loved Me tanker scenes, was not quite enough space-wise. So they relocated for this abandoned Rolls-Royce factory. <laughs> I don't like James Bond's hair in this. Oh. <laughs> Is he too hairy for your taste? So maybe next week we can have a guy who's created a website called Hairstyles of James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts about the toilet? Okay. Uh, Actually, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Uh, carry on. Carry on. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So what's wrong with the hair? It's too long. I was thinking of the chest hair, which is massive. Oh, really? Okay. Well. <laughs> well um, yeah. Uh, I don't like his hairstyle in this one. Oh, I thought it was fine. And I couldn't take my attention away from it either. Well, no can do. You're going to have that attention now. There for a while. So we get to the meeting of Ale, Alec, or as my friend used to say, Alec. Great hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the chest hair. Also very good. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's this moment when, uh, when Alec comes from the darkness with the gun and says something in Russian, something like, Get the mo, mister. Would you imagine? But uh, Sean Bean, yeah. He's coming there in a kind of a Butch Cassidy way, apparently. Butch Cassidy was the inspiration for Alec coming into the light. Henrik, any smart thoughts on that? Well, well, I, I don't know if Butch Cassidy ever tried to botch any operations. Like Alex <laughs> here is is then almost then certainly doing. Sean Bean was once considered as James Bond. I can totally see it. Kind of a Daniel Craig interpretation. Yeah, the only problem no, 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 with that no. would be that James Bond actually has to live through the film. Oh, there's, there's that. Good point. And there's a second thing. Uh, he doesn't really have the accent for it. Ready to save the world again? Yeah. Uh, Where's he coming from, Tom? Do you know? Sheffield. Ooh. Mm. Which is the north of England, and James Bond is not from the north of England. Yeah, so, but... So, George Lazenby was from Australia. Yeah, but he kind of faked the accent, though. So <laughs> so the facility, we're still in the Rolls-Royce factory. Looking great, looking great. Also in the game, fantastic that they got to emulate these locations so well in, what was it, 96 when the game came out? Henrik, did you ever play the video game? I, I did play as Odd Job. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> the short one in, in the bunch. Uh, I, I did... Check out the video game, like, maybe 10 years after it had come out. I never actually got into the game during the Nintendo 64 era. Skipped the console entirely, and eventually... Well, I I, I played it through in in my friend's home, just to see what all the fuss was about, because, because Code and I, the video game, 
was and still is considered to be some hot shit. And eventually I just had to see it. Yeah, made by Rareware. Uh, this was some hot shit indeed in my childhood. <laughs> it went so that I already had gotten Sega Saturn. But uh, then I demanded that my that I must get also Nintendo 64 because of Super Mario and because of GoldenEye. And then my dad was like giving up like, okay, fucking hell. Better give this guy the second console. So I got it. And I, I think it I think I played it with friends for like two years. Fantastic game at the time. I never played it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. In the facility, the shooting of the scientists was actually filmed. And this is just another example how violent this film was when they first made the first work print, which was actually 141 minutes, which is really long. Have to wonder what kind of other scenes there were that they cut. That's a lot of freaking footage that we have never seen. Anyway, German actor plays Urumov. Gottfried John is playing Colonel Urumov. I have, once again, pretty unknown. Maybe in our, our parts in, in, in Finland and in Poland. I, I would guess the most notable roles from him would be The Ogre, where he played Chief Forrester and appearing as Julius Caesar in, in Asterix and Obelix meet Caesar. And of course, we have Sean Bean, known from The Lord of the Rings and what else? Known to actually be able to stay alive in films like Clean Skin, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, Silent Hill and, and the Sharp series. And I guess quite prominent in the Game of Thrones TV series. Yeah, but he also dies there. Of course. No, naturally. I, I'm, I'm counting in on, only on the films that, that Sean Bean manages to survive. <laughs> there, there's a lot of inspiration Martin Campbell has used for making this film. For example, The Wild Bunch. You guys know the scene where Urumov shoots one of his own men because he prematurely ejaculates at James Bond. Mm -hmm. This shooting is loaned from The Wild Bunch. There's a Mexican lieutenant who shoots one of his men for this similar reason. Let's get to the wrong way. Shot in Switzerland. There is something that needs to be pointed out. This is the absolutely hilarious shot at this guy. He falls from the plane, actually, because Bond drops him. And then he's driven over by the motorbike. And I just thought that, that that's that's just kind of... Uh, you have to genuinely cry of laughter when you, when you see that scene. You know, first of all, this guy makes a really funny sound. And then he flies in the air like he would be on a trampoline and probably was. It looks so goofy. Anyway, I have a really weird sense of humor. Yep. Yep. You laugh and enjoy seeing people in agony. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, someone could even go as far and say that you are an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Not me, though. Not me. But someone. It's my favorite shot. Definitely. Okay. Derek Meddings is to thank for, for miniatures in this film. And he is thanked in the end credits because... Well, he has, he has a special mention at the beginning of the credits because the bugger died, uh, I believe, uh, shortly before the release of GoldenEye. And you see this full shot of the entire runway and it's in all its glory in one of those moments. And it's, it's a painting. And in the middle, you have only the runway, which is 
which is the only real part of what you see and completely fools me you compare this miniature work and paintings from the older bond films this is really fantastic if, if this is really only a painting then oh god i can't tell the difference not on blu-ray and not on anything but of course derek meddings was one of the best in the business of all time and there was this guy named zoo french guy who did the real jump off the cliff it was done seven times and yes it also required seven motorcycles <laughs> it's <laughs> it's unbelievable and they had to time the jump in a way that the, the, the plane is coming overhead it's not getting off the runway at that moment for real in that shot it's just flying very close to zoo who is doing the jump and trying his darnest to time it so that they would be somewhat on the same position <laughs> what's that <laughs> <laughs> it's a sound he makes what <laughs> uh, it's a sound bond makes on the plane <laughs> <laughs> gotta love those personal sound effects <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't emulate that guy. Uh, the thing is, if you get this wrong, you can sound really stupid. Yeah. No. Yeah, <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> so very Bondian moment. Do you think that we are going back to the James Bond bullshit moments via this film? I would say The License to Kill had its fair share of unbelievable moments. Is this pushing it real? too far or is it the great introduction of a james bond to the 90s your thoughts it's okay this is like moonraker level <laughs> i mean it is bullshit in, in a sense that that is kind of a that that must be the highest mountain cliff in the history of mountain cliffs <laughs> that has a runway in it because no no there's no chance in hell that bond really would have had the, the time and the opportunity to hijack the plane on free fall and and then break the fall using the plane. Like, no way. Like, ev even the time that it would take for Bond to actually reach terminal velocity, that would take too long. And the velocity between plane and Bond would be... The, the difference would be so high that, that no, no fucking way would Bond have had the time. Even yeah. with his parachuting stunts to actually reach, the, reach and pull off the plane. But it's not like it's not the worst we've seen in this franchise, or and it's not the worst we we will see or, or the franchise. So in that regard, it's not a like I, I'm not faulting the the film for 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 that stunt and for that moment. No, I think it's a very enjoyable bullshit moment, even it, though it's yeah, it's it's precisely that. It's precisely that. It's in, enjoyable bullshit. James Bond, he may have a license to kill, but. Not the license to break the traffic law. Break the laws of physics in this case. Or traffic. Mm. All right. <clears throat> Title sequence done by Danny Kleinman, who has done all of the modern James Bond title sequences. So he really inherited this job from Maurice Binder. And this is the moment that we all have been waiting for in the laboratory. Henrik's favorite moments from the title sequences are probably starting to pop up with Mr. Kleinman at the helm. Yep. Yup, yup, yup. I'm I'm most definitely I am the fan of the more modern title sequences where I feel that the themes are are, are stronger and there is more of them and they tie more heavily 
into the film. And there's actually even there's even more stuff that happens in these title sequences. And I'm I'm not meaning the silhouettes of of naked ladies, but ba- basically what is going on during title sequences, like for example the falling uh, falling sickles and hammers that tie into the the fall of Soviet Union and Bond versus the Russians angle that the film has. Or, or, or that that two-faced lady who has who has a pistol coming out of his mouth and stuff like that. I really do like that in my Bond opening title sequences. Yeah, and it very effectively ties into the entire film because it's basically Janus, the two-faced god. Yep. Michael Wilson, the producer, one of the producers, said that according to Moscow Times from Russia, the title sequence was one of the most offensive things to the Indian Communist Party and others that are still active in the world. He, Wilson said that, quote, the icons of Russian communism were destroyed not by a militaristic invasion or anything, but by bikini-clad women in high heels and hammers. <laughs> so it was a big deal. And I can kind of understand why that would have been a big deal. Yeah. Not, not, not only the fact that you sh- you show the, the destruction of, of famous communist icons yeah. like like the like the falling hammers and sickles and and the hammering of of the statues of lenin like that that yeah. alone is kind of kind of a bad enough but but then you also the person the ones actually destroying those symbols are extremely sexualized very liberal ladies so like, like, no wonder that commies had a problem with it. That's understandable from their perspective. I, though, firmly believe that no ill intention was meant here. I think it's also a very good way to show that uh, that the period of communism or the, the, the high times of communism were over. It's a good transition. Does it strike you as kind of odd that GoldenEye was released in 1995 and the Soviet Union ended in 1991? However, they're still showing like the uh, it's still set in Soviet times. I think it partly is like the pre pre title sequence happens in the eighties, and then we got yeah. to a, yeah. what what whatever it was five years later or something. They're having the Aston Martin Ferrari. Nine years, yeah. Nine years. Okay, yeah. So basically, Pierce Brosnan was Timothy Dalton for a moment there. That was the implication, in my opinion, what that the film tried to give you, like. <sighs> Uh, also, because in in the opening scene, in, in in the opening action scenes, the close appearance of of Brosnan compared to Dalton, it really is played up during the first first moments. For the largest par- part of the opening, Brosnan's face is hidden. It's it's hidden in the shadows. It's hidden with the camera angles, and through this, you are given constant reminders. And implications that you are still watching Dalton. Really? Never thought about it in that way, but I think his hairstyle is, or hair is similar throughout the film. Well, yeah, yeah, that 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 can be. Like, he isn't as shaved as, as Dalton was. But when, when you look at how, how Bond is presented in, in the very first moments, he first appears to the screen and... It, it's a back shot. He's running away from the camera. That's stationary. He reaches the middle of the dam. Close-ups on, on his equipment. 
a very quick passing of the face, which you can't really really notice on and and the side side features of, of Brosnan's face glanced over extremely quickly. Then he takes the jumping pose. It's shot from a top of him, showing you the top of his head, but not the face. Then there is the jump. Once again, was there one like flash cut that shows you some resemblance of his face, and then but. Other, other than that, it's just you know his face is hidden in the shadows and it's it's shot from the uh, from afar and then he pulls off his his cable gun, whatever grappling gun he has, and there is a quick flash as he fires it. But once again, it's it's like a millisecond thing, and you don't still it doesn't highlight his face properly. You just see once again, you just get a quick glimpse of something like one cheek. And and this 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 continues until he shows up perving in the toilet. I think it's just to make the entrance of the new James Bond more dramatic, and that's the whole story. I would think so that their intention was to get as far away from any idea of a Dalton at this point, because they're introducing a new James Bond, and uh, you know they weren't. Everybody was not on board for License to Kill. No, much more. I don't know. Then again, to me. Goldeneye once again is very much a transitioning bond. Like it's a it's a bond that that tries to make the jump from Dalton to Brosnan, and and through this act it tries to carry some as a semblance of a Timothy Dalton Bond film. Also, when you when you compare Goldeneye to the rest of of Brosnan Run, it is the most violent. It's it's the most dark. It's also the most realistic. Like you, you, you yeah. get the moments where the realism is 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 cut and loose. Like once again, Timothy Dalton faced off a Colombian drug dealer in in license, and and here Bond is facing off once again one lunatic who has a super satellite that that causes explosions through EMP. Like there, there is that sci- science fiction bullshit element in in the story, but it's not as retarded as, for example, Moonraker's tracks. It's kind of a tying with once again half realistic, half bullshit. And le- the the further the Brosnan run goes, the more prominent the bullshit becomes. Unfortunately, and I will say already that my opinion. Goldeneye is the only good Pierce Brosnan James Bond film. This is the only good James Bond film that the writers and the team had to offer for Pierce Brosnan. There was nothing wrong with Pierce Brosnan per se. It's just the movies were kind of shit. No, not true. I like The World Is Not Enough. It's great. It's also, like, it's okay. It's tolerable. It's trying. It's fucking trying, but no cigar. No no cigar for, for The World Is Not Enough. Yeah, also to the realism of Goldeneye is contributing hugely the DP Phil Mayhew, who tried to, quote, retain the glamour feel of locations, yet bring some reality to the look of it. And that's definitely what I'm seeing here. I mean, the locations can be very glamorous, but the color palette is intended, for example, to be more realistic. No, not all happy pastel colors, just more realistic has also worked with martin campbell at least on the the zorro film and then we have the car chase ferrari 355 there was an eighty thousand dollar collision that they had with the ferrari but uh, they were able to fix all the damage in one day and get back to shooting 
here we have a woman who is less of a strong character i would say in this film and uh, it ends with quote let's toast for your evaluation a very thorough evaluation Ew. it's just yeah. too easy it, it, it's too easy also there there is the, the problematic nature of, of well a Bond endangering the lives of something like 20 people simply because he wa wants to show off to the shrink and uh, I don't know, massages his ego and goes on in the, in extremely dangerous driving competition with, with some random lady. And uh, also the fact that the shrink obviously does not want to be take be part of Bond's racing team and would just want to leave the car at that point and it's it's almost like a hostage situation. And to make things worse, yeah. to make things even more dangerous, he drinks and drives. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he does. Yes. Very good point. <laughs> that bastard. No respect for traffic laws. He gives zero fucks, does, does Bond. Yeah, there were several different kinds of frame counts used in different shots throughout the scene because there is a lot of high-speed action, so they need to capture everything essential, I believe, and, and that was the reason. Of course, many kinds of cameras and blah, blah, blah in use. Interesting and very meticulously planned chase scene. I really enjoy it. It always gets a huge laugh and smile out of everybody when they see this kind of playful interaction with Xenia. But of course, French people hated the biker shot, so you can't please everybody. They first filmed the champagne bottle etiquette uh, upside down, so they had to reshoot it. <laughs> All right, we get to Casino. It's actually in Monte Carlo. And some of the shots were from the actual casino, but uh, some of them were not, because Peter Lamont, Peter Lamont was able to recreate the casino very much to the T in the studio. God damn, I can't tell the difference, really. When he enters the casino, it's the real casino. Then they get to the table, it's not the casino. Interestingly, some lady won. It was like a bunch of ladies that won a contest during License to Kill, to be in the next James Bond film. Well, unfortunately, they just had to wait an additional six years to wait for it to come out, but, uh, or to be made. But they got to that point, finally. And at that, at that point in time, the ladies who won the competition were already too old. Yeah, to be like... anything else, else except glorified extras. Well, I, I, I guess Bond finally is gambling with his own money since he's not on, on any assignment yet. And somehow Xenia on the top and James Bond bump into each other once again here. Either it was intentional from James Bond's part or not, or from Xenia's part. It could be, of course. I think that that's the most plausible explanation because otherwise. Is Xenia on the top one of the best Bond villains of all time? At, at least on uh, from the female Bond villains. Yeah, he's, she's very expressive. She doesn't hold back. Whatever happens, she's always game and actually getting an orgasm when it gets more weird and weird or more violent. Yeah, and, and violent is something that she most definitely is. Like, uh, when you compare her to other major female villains in, in Bond films, you, usually the women are some, someone who use constantly henchmen. And other machinations to keep themselves in, themselves in in the background and not to really take active part on what happens, like the villainous deeds of the film the, themselves. But Xenia 
is someone who has no problem or and someone who actually wants to be the one who holds the AK when she's gunning down the entire room full of people. And we're introduced to her favorite word, something in Russian, like Polyaj, which uh, <coughs> is used here in Casino and everywhere. Means something like damn. Oh. Yacht, hello? Oh, I said oh. Oh, hello. Oh. Yacht, Manticore. This was some kind of a most up to date French yacht at the time. It had indoor spaces. <laughs> major invention and we get to a porn scene at the Montecor. Yeah, this is fucking weird this was really weird contributes to the ab- absolute weirdness of the character fun fact behind the curtain there were doubles of both actors uh playing exactly at the same time the same motions to give the idea that th- there would be a shadow casted uh, on that curtain but uh, no, they could, they needed to have doubles there because otherwise there would be the camera shadow in the curtain. So kind of funny. And uh, of course, uh, James Bond film would not be complete without Michael G. Wilson cameo. It's his stunt hands taking the card from the pocket. It's actually kind of unclear who the hell is taking the card because it's not Xenia. It's not the guy because it's, he's getting strangled. So I suppose it's this person that looks perfectly like this Emerald who takes his place. And this is kind of a Thunderball bullshit situation where we actually have a guy who has probably had crazy plastic surgery to resemble so much of the real guy that he gets on board the Tiger helicopter. The cut back to the cringing body is pretty hilarious coming out of the closet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a, I think he, well, died in, he died in orgasm. <laughs> yeah, he went off to the happy place. <laughs> Xenia, I can't breathe. Happy, happy. Yeah, it always makes me laugh, and because I'm sick. And it was really called the Tiger Helicopter. It was an experiment. Air Specials built a German-French helicopter. There was only one that was working, and guess the price? $100 million in 95. It also did a complete loop-de-loop movement for the film, but it was cut for timing purposes. Interesting that Bond, <laughs> well, he's James Bond, so he tries his best to stop the helicopter but the whole idea is ludicrous i mean he's bond man all but he he tries to run solo to the helipad to stop these guys and then the guards capture him and oddly enough he's not saying a word not that it would be probably very useful at that moment but he could have said like hey there's bad guys in the helicopter maybe you want to do something about it i'm of secret agent james bond so but no yeah that that is somewhat weird moment in in, in the film i never also I also never really figured out why the hell Bond acts like he does here. Except, of course, that the script demands it. Bond can't stop the helicopter theft. Yet, in, in, in this point of film... Yeah, maybe it was like this, that James Bond had an earpiece and heard the instructions at that moment from M that, God damn it, James Bond, get the hell out of there. I told you not to touch this helicopter. Let them go. And he was like, okay. Yep. So we get to Severnaya, Russia. Space Weapons Control Center with Huskies. And this is rather amazing. Like, all of these supposedly external shots of the Space Weapons Control Center are miniatures. There is nothing real. Nothing was shot on location. Oh. So, yeah, it's a combination of digital miniatures, 
and uh, definitely those amazing um, fighter jets that are also miniatures they're extremely convincing to me like for example when they get to the air from the, from the runway looks so real and the interior scenes with natalia and boris they were some of the very first scenes to be shot for the film Slow yeah the film had to be a little bit rescheduled because pierce had pierce brosnan had pierced some injury to his hand we're introduced to isabella skorupko She's actually Polish, was born in Białystok, but has actually grown up in Sweden. You can tell it from her accent, totally Swedish accent, when she speaks English in interviews. She was found in Sweden, as it happens, filming something. Uh, it was like the last desperate attempt, like, where have we not gone yet? Oh, Sweden, let's go there. And there they found Isabella Skorupko. Yeah, like... Of course, you have to be desperate if you go to Sweden to look for actors, you know. <laughs> She's a singer, too. And first marriage of hers was to Mariusz Czerkowski, who is a very, very famous Polish hockey player. Also was playing in the NHL. Now, now he's retired, though. We have a lot of hints to feminism. The female characters are stronger. But for example, here, Natalia is facing this bullshit that Boris is pulling head on. And so is the friend Anna, who comments that he wouldn't know a woman even if the woman was standing on his head. Something like this. Tom, you are the language expert of English language. Uh. So, knockers, they're right in front of you and can open very large doors. Why? What does it mean? I have no idea. <laughs> Slughead. Uh. What? Knockers? Yeah. Seriously? You're, you're really asking that? I am. Why are they opening doors? Because doors has, have knockers. Like the old-fashioned, for example, castle wall, wooden doors. Okay, well, it's just my perverted mind. I, 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 I don't even wanna know what you were picturing in, in your head. Testicles. Like I, I have I, I fucking played Duke Nukem forever, so I have had my... My fair share of wall boobs. Of very large doors. But nobody screws with Boris Krishenko, so let's spike them. No way I spike them. He's a good good actor. Alan Cumming, isn't it? Yep. Anything about him? Well <laughs> <laughs> Yep, 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 yep. Uh Alan Alan Cumming is is <laughs> I, I I guess I I I guess you you can be a Familiar with, with coming from from the from the Smurfs movies and and Son of the Mask where he played Loki and if if you want something more kind of a serious there there is the and you have a tolerance for for cape shit he did play Nightcrawler in in X Men Two. Say no more, Oscar worthy. You you are the one who wa- wanted to take. A special time to, to take a look up the filmography of coming. Yep. Then we open the golden eye safe, of course, when Urmov arrives with the helicopter. And also that when the helicopter arrives and comes down to the helipad, that, that is zero external shots. It's all done in studio with matte paintings and uh, digital and uh, miniatures and uh, other bunch of shit. Uh, the pan into the golden eye safe when it opens... It was taken in 21 takes because Campbell wanted to get the movement perfectly right. 
because this is a James Bond film and actually it does look amazing. I sometimes marvel at that shot when the camera pans next to the opening eyeball looking safe. It's really nice. And as Campbell put it, then they pick up the fried egg, which is the golden eye. But yeah, lots of technical problems. Projector that was uh, shooting the image to the main monitor failed and there was only one available in England. And the gang of Ormov now are using the special helicopter here in order to go and destroy the space control center to capture Goldeneye to give it to Alec Trevelyan who wants to destroy the, the entire world's computers apparently for his financial gain. But except the problem is that the course of all the money would crash completely after such an event. So I don't know if this is a, such a wonderful plan, Alec. Yeah, like what? what is the money that he's trying to steal here? Yeah, it's the one that just got destroyed by the EMP. Uh, precisely. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's no use to steal, steal currency, for example, from British General Bank. If the form you, you actually steal the currency is in bits and bytes, as, as it's with Alex's case, and you then actually somehow use, use a miracle satellite to completely fry the British computer systems and the computer network. Even if this this stash of digital cash would be somewhere in a Faraday's cage and it would survive the golden eye, then how would it be accepted after you restore the systems into some state and, well, you wipe out the transaction details and criminal records and so on, but uh, like it would cause such of a international havoc that, uh, no, <laughs> that's not a good idea. But yeah, here we have Xenia Onotop again having an orgasm when she shooting all the people in the space coral center and shoots randomly in the air vent for some reason doesn't even take a look if somebody died or not shoots there and then makes the joke it's clean i had to ventilate someone which never got the laugh in theaters apparently and yeah it doesn't work even if you would have shown the body falling or something happening i think it would have been more effective or maybe it's just a lame joke tom franklin Hello. I think about the joke. Hello. Yeah, uh, it's it's not a joke, is it? Yeah, no, it, it's so unfunny. It doesn't qualify as a joke. And then we get to the bus external shot of the MI6 headquarters with the bus. Apparently, it cost a fortune to get the bus ordered for the scene, and it broke down immediately. So they just went to shoot an actual real bus passing by on its shift. And yeah, why don't you just do that? And they did. Should have done it in the first place. Then we get to Money Penny. First, after hours, dressing Money Penny. Actually, here the feminism part is kind of getting into the full swing. Uh, Money Penny is not is is not completely head over heels about James Bond anyway anymore because well she has found a gentleman gentleman that he's going to go to the theater together every now and then. Interestingly, if you look at the video game where you have, you know, this briefing text before you go on a mission, there is this money penny section as like a humorous purposes as the last part of the, the briefing. And uh, all of that is telling of a huge infatuation of money penny towards James Bond, but definitely doesn't happen in the film or kind of does, but doesn't. Yeah. So MI6 already knows something about the GoldenEye and its existence and that this kind of a project could have been in motion, but they don't believe it was in motion anyway because it would have required a hell of a lot of money. So it's kind of up in the air if it actually is 
in development or not. And during the filming of GoldenEye, the real MI6 head was a woman. So they're kind of reflecting the times. The scene in the M office must probably be the most quoted and most rememberable scene from the entire film. Would you agree? Any thoughts on that? Because uh, M uh, goes head on against James Bond and addresses what she thinks about him, explains that there is no problem. She doesn't lack the balls to send him to his, send him to his death if need be, but still shows that she has affection or that she is totally not a heartless monster and shows that she cares about the well-being of James Bond at the end of the scene. That's a great scene, though. Like, we don't see this very often. James Bond being challenged in a way and his character is being discussed. Golden is touching on some very uncharted territory. It is, and I personally do think that the film is all the more stronger because of it. Yeah. The decision was made at some point to go with uh, Emma as a woman, and, but they still wanted to have somebody established to kind of make it work for sure. It's always kind of a risky move, of course, because uh, traditionally or before, always it has been a male character. And uh, you never know how the audience will like these kind of a big changes, to be honest. But it definitely works with, with uh, Dame Judi Dench here. I feel that this is her best performance as M, because I, I I really feel that she is quite strong as M in her performance, like a like a strong leader type of performance. But when you start to look at the next James Bond films, for example, Tomorrow Never Dies, I think she feels a little bit weak. She addresses this one: is it a general that says that I don't think you have balls for this job? It's it's a great scene. It's funny, but I feel that M is like weaker character especially in the world it's not enough she is taken also as a hostage and throughout all these scenes it seems that she lacks ability to challenge this guy in any way really weak very very easy to maneuver and take control of uh i i yeah yeah but i i still like her especially in casino royale yeah dentures i'm really did, did take a beating in in the franchise like how the character was was approached and used in in the films because it it's kind of a goes all over the place. It starts really strong here in Golden Eye, then it kind of a falls more and more flat as as Prosnan's run continues, and then it once again starts to pick up more with with Daniel Craig, where M once again is is more is a stronger character and is is more ready to talk back. Yeah, especially I would like to note from Twine or The World Is Not Enough when uh, Dame Judi Dench or M is gotten out of the cell of Renard and Bond has to save her. That's not the big problem, but she, yeah, she just sounds like she's really in desperation and then she gets out of the cell and then notices that Bond has shot Electro King and she looks really, really sad about it. Yeah, it, it doesn't strike me as a leader type of a person in that movie in any way. And I think it's just a bad directing at that point. Especially a leader type character in the universe of the Bond films where the leader would really have to be like emotionally extremely strong person because you are someone who constantly is sending people to die or sending people to the double O agents in situations where they, they are likely to die 
unless exactly. they are like James Bond who manages to pull off every stunt you throw at him. But yeah, that that does require a lot of a lot from person, and that would I very strongly would could say that that would actually have a long term running cycle even psychological effects on person. So then just um all of a sudden being very emotional about some casualty that happens during the adventure. Judy dances and being really bothered about the death of Electra King, who has already made it clear that she is a bad guy. And the, the, this kind of an emotional connection between Am and King. In the film, it relied on the fact that Am knew Electra's dad and did participate in the talks when Electra was originally kidnapped to get her mm. back. So she didn't even know Electra King that closely, really, in, in that film's universe, and still she appears really sad to see that Electra dies. Right. And it's it's kind of like, are, are you a strong leader of the organization whose operatives are constantly facing life or death situations, or are you not? Like, how overly sensitive are you? Right, right, right. So it's it's like a question of is is M now like the accountant, like a bean counter, or is she not? Like, what do you want to do with this character? And it seems like she's kind of a bean counter or somebody who is completely unaware of the dangers of the field. In the the world is not enough. But uh, yeah, <laughs> did somebody spot why the hell they're starting to talk about the Yanis syndicate all of a sudden? They are looking at the video screen and monitoring the situation at Severnaya. Where the fuck is the, the Janus Syndicate suddenly popping up from? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Are those the Siberian rebels? Yeah, they just, I guess they were just looking at the video and thought that, okay, this looks like some work of a Janus Syndicate. And they just go well, from, from there. It seems kind of sophisticated for them, really. It, it does, because the film also makes the notion that Janus Syndicate and Janus himself are supposed to be just a high-class arms dealers. Like yeah. They they are not supposed to be the free-running terrorists who would yeah. pull, on, pull off an EMP attack on some spy center in middle of Russia or the yeah. backwoods of Russia. Yeah, it seems quite far-fetched to send James Bond only based on this. But, well, yeah, they, they make in M's office the connection that, uh, that Urumov is responsible for the space division. So this guy should be something to look into. Interestingly, on the Blu-ray, you can you have enough detail to to see the whole, pretty much the whole file of Urumov on the screen, and uh, it says that Urumov was one of the key persons responsible for the Gorbachev coup or the Soviet coup d'état attempt in 1991, meaning that he is kind of a hardline communist to drive that point kind of on the forefront. And uh, well, M says it; he sees himself as the next Iron Man of Russia. But uh, says that political analysts say he doesn't fit the profile of a traitor, but they investigate anyway. Interestingly, the M scene ends with M saying, and if you should come across Urimov, guilty or not, don't run off on some kind of a vendetta. It kind of is feeling like some kind of echo from licensed kill, kind of a reference to that or not. But it's addressed that uh, James Bond can be prone to vendetta, apparently. And then... uh, Continues, avenging Alec Trevelyan will not bring him. You didn't get him killed. Neither did you. Don't make it personal. And then Bond ends it with, 
Never. Again, is this, a, is this now a jab at License to Kill? I'm never going to do that kind of a mistake anymore. Is it to set a border between the style here, or is it just nothing to think about? Interesting. I didn't read too much into that line. Like, to, to me, it appeared more, mostly like they are still trying to keep the Electravelian being the main bad guy under wraps and, and hidden, which was kind of a stupid when you checked out exactly how the trailers dealt with the subject matter, where yeah. they gave you flat out the plot point, the main plot twist that 006 is the bad guy of the film. But I uh, to, to me, this was just an attempt to still kind of... A, Kind of give, give audiences a red herring or steer them another direction. Not to start to draw parallels between Bond now having a miraculous new villain, the Janus, to, to face off. And the fact that 006 was shown to the audience. He was presented in the opening act of the film. Uh, of course, now we get to St. Petersburg and Urimov's briefing for Mishkin and the council. The interior was filmed in a real building in the financial area, and uh, the council does not buy, uh, Mishkin included, the story that Urimov is trying to feed for them. We also have a Michael G. Wilson cameo here. Here's one of the council members on the left side of the screen when they show a little bit of a close-up with those beautiful glasses. <clears throat> and uh, The blame is set on Siberian separatists. Quote, uh, the peaceful existence and hard-needed currency is put on knife's edge for years. Or something like that. So therefore he offers his resignation. And uh, it's a kind of a wonder that they're not suspecting Urimov at this moment. It's made so obvious that this guy is not. He's trying to just get, get away from the situation. The council doesn't want his head. Merely Urimov's assurance that there are no more golden eyes in existence. And he assures that there is none of them. Which kind of begs the question exactly how easy is it to build a super satellite in... In Soviet Union or in Russia, depending on how old GoldenEye is. Uh, actually, it wasn't GoldenEye, it is a Soviet satellite system. Yes. Yeah, so how easy actually it is to build one of those, since Urmov apparently was able to keep the entire government, entire Soviet and later Russian government, in the dark of the fact that there were two satellites. Right, quite funny. That's how it goes with these larger-than-life James Bond films. When there are bad guys, the whole whole world shuts their eyes about huge-ass bases inside volcanoes and all that. Yeah, because building those satellites most definitely hasn't been cheap and easy, and then launching them to the orbit. No, 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 no. easy. And, and, and if there was something that that Soviet Union was was kind of a known for, it was the excess amount of money. But now Mishkin simply orders Urimov to look closer into the two programmers that have apparently escaped alive the whole space center. And so he does, but we cut to the queue scene. Morning queue, sorry about the lag. Skiing. Hunting. Any thoughts on that? Good scene. Mm. You kind of takes a backseat from, from license where he ac- actually did show Bond that he can work as a field operative, and he even helped to save Bond's ass in- on the field. Off the record, though. What was working rogue uh, with Bond? Yup. But Bond still knows that he actually has a depth queue, and here 
you once again is the nerdy scientist who Bond doesn't really take seriously, Bond doesn't really listen what Q has to say, and Bond constantly kind of interrupts Q to do stupid antics in his lab. So it's kind of a, it, it, the, the dynamic between Bond and Q returns back into Q pitching, up, pitching to Bond to bring back his gadgets, and Bond kind of being the man of the world, the street smart agent who doesn't really have time or interest to listen to all, 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 the, all the safety regulations and safety regards that Q has to give to him. Yeah, after this extremely deep dive into the whole Timothy Dalton era, I would say that I really, really loved the interaction of the, the both of them together. And I really liked when Dalton's Bond was paying attention to what was actually being said. I don't know. I just uh, I feel that this is kind of a backtracking back to the Roger Mobile bullshit moments. Yeah, it's comedic value, but there is this more loving connection when Timothy Dalton makes any human interaction. Really, there is there is that, and there is also the notion that like Bond as a character, like the the double O agent James Bond should know that once he leaves Q's lab, he's going back into the field, and the field is a place where he gets shot at. So, kind of a, what Q has to, give to, uh, has to give to him, they are the last resort that Bond has on the field to actually save his back when, when the, the situation gets rough. Right. And, and Bond not paying any attention to even properly how to use the gadgets. And what the gadgets can do, and how do how they operate? It, it's kind of like Bond doesn't take a life or death situation, and and the fact that he's going to face that situation on the next moment seriously. Like, would I be in Bond's shoes? I would really like to know how much weight, for example, that that belt buckle grapple gun can hold. If I'm carrying two per a person and myself and putting that weight on on that grapple does it hold like that that would be interesting information to me when i'm going yeah. to the field but but bond really never actually stops to think about the situations yeah the scene when the belt buckle is introduced there is this two shot of bond and q there is an excellent blu-ray it really has been from the early early days of the dvd release this commentary track from Michael G. Wilson and Martin Campbell where they explain that that Desmond Llewellyn as Q was, of course, fantastic and had to rely sometimes, though, on Q cards because of this of this impossible dialogue bits. For example, this belt buckle shot, uh, two shot, uh, goes on for quite a long time and he has to babble out all this technical jargon. And if you look at it carefully on the Blu-ray, you can see that he's looking past Brosnan to a cue card and then changes his, where, the direction where he's looking back to Brosnan. And it's quite obvious. One does not simply teach Bond. Nor does one simply give him any advice. Yeah. I thought I would be funny and uh, do the Barmia meme, you know. <laughs> what? Which? Yeah, from, from Lord of the Rings, one does not simply X. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like Sean Bean, but yeah. Yeah, of course. Legendary. And there is this, uh, there's a lot of ex- explosions in this film. And there is this line from Desmond Don't say it. And it continues by Pierce Brosnan with the 
the writings on the wall. <clears throat> Maybe it was kind of a predicting something. It, it, it's foreshadowing the much more darker days. Yeah. 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 Along with the rest of him. <laughs> now 007, do please try and return. And this lady that is now flying in the air, in the chair, poor lady. She actually hurt herself pretty badly or did hurt herself in that scene. If you look at the legs, they are kind of in an uncomfortable position when she lands. And don't touch that. That's my lunch. I like that. This script is good. The script is good. The, the jokes work for most of the time. The dialogue is really good, albeit too literary sometimes. I feel that it's too manufactured because nobody would be speaking in those fancy words or so clearly, so perfectly. And it's kind of the problem that I sometimes see in Casino Royale as well, but I enjoy yeah, I enjoy it anyway. Okay, flight with British Airways to St. Petersburg. Whitaker is back. Any thoughts on that? Whitaker didn't die. He's back, not as an arms dealer, but a secret CIA agent. Or kind of a new Felix Slider. Jack Wade, CIA. Jordan Baker, who of course played Whitaker in The Living Daylights, returns as Jack Wade from CIA here. There's good dialogue. This whole, in London, April's a spring month. Oh yeah? What are you, the weatherman? He's such a stereotypical American. <laughs> yeah, it's very stereotypical to show the tattoo in your butt to convince the British agent that you are actually working with me. Well, in, in his defense, Bond did pull off a gun just to get get a <laughs> moment to check up some man asses. So Yeah, Muffy, third wife. Muffy, Muffy. The most important part is cut here. I don't know if they shot it, but that would have been essential. Hey, Bond, do you do any gardening? And we never get the answer. Damn it, movie. We have to build more character of James Bond. We never get to know these intimate details, how he spends his spare time. Except with the ladies, of course. But damn, missed opportunity right there. Then we get to Natalia, Natalia, Natalia at the train stop. Uh, actually shot in St. Pancras Station in London. Tom Franklin, do you know this location? Yes, I do. Is it the best of the best of the creme de la creme of train stops? It's pretty impressive. Is it? Yeah. It's quite popular. Oh, let's go there when I when I visit the UKs. Yeah, come along. Let's, all right. All right. Magic teleport to St. Petersburg from there. But uh, then we get to the scene where Jack Wade is explaining the Janus Syndicate. KGB military screwdriver. This is filmed in Courtauld Institute, London as well. They shot everything they possibly could in London instead of on location in St. Petersburg to avoid all the issues with the bureaucracy and to avoid the high costs in general, frankly, of shooting there. And they always had this uncertainty about whether they would be able to shoot that day because it could be that the government was a little bit unpredictable. They might give you like a full pass to shoot and then you, you never know. You know, it's, yeah, I hate to say it, but hey, it's Russia after all. And they were shooting in St. Petersburg in front of a building, many of the shots, in front of a building that consisted of the places of French embassy, some other embassies, some uh, government-related offices. So definitely kind of surprising that they got to shoot there at all, especially when they have to deal with explosions and uh, uh, making it a hard time for the Russian soldiers. But I think they made the right call here that they did not let 
any of the Russians die in Russia in the film. That could have been a problem. Could have been. Then we get to the shopping for computers and chatting with Boris. What does Natalia need? Henrik. I I guess the half of the entire Russian IT department. IBM compatible with 500 megabyte hard drives, CD-ROM and 14.4 modems. High-tech shit. At least back in those days. <laughs> Madame would like to try one computer in one room in peace. Again, like one of my favorite shots of the entire film is when Natalia is using her fingers to type. I don't know why, but it's fucking hilarious. And the sound is fucking amazing. I don't know, I'm, I'm so weird. This is probably my most seen James Bond film of all time. It might explain why I have weird psychological problems watching this film. It, this really starts to sound like you have a fetish. <laughs> Just look at it. <laughs> fucking amazing. And, um, and now we approach uh, Zukovsky. Valentin Dimitri Zukovsky or something like that. And Jack Wade from CIA explains that the last guy who dropped in uninvited went home in an air fright in very small boxes. Make sure they sent me home first class. Good line. One cutscene is uh, after Wade is asking about the gardening. And we show a shot of Natalia in the in the graveyard, which leads to the church eventually. Just some bullshit that it was good to cut it because it doesn't mean anything really. And um, I feel like the movie is kind of slow in the middle part. Do you get that feeling? It still is. Not really. uh, no, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> no then. And we get to the church. And of course, Boris is there. Natalia, it's me. It's Boris. It's Boris. It's Boris. It's Boris. Hello. And notices Xenia behind. So that happiness ends right there. Oh, bitch. Yeah. Which one? Both of them. No. No? Oh. Boris is great. Yeah. Invincible. Yeah. Apparently, they wanted to get a good singer to do bad singing because a good singer would be able to perform bad singing, apparently, accurately. So that was given to Mini Driver. Has appeared in Goodwill Hunting, doing something. More and more of these uh, feminism references, I would say, because she's singing this. Because after all, he's just a man. It's a good scene. Great uh, performance from uh, Mr. Zugovsky, also known as Robbie Coltrane. Henrik, tell us about Robbie Coltrane. Coltrane is, is I, I guess, most well-known for for his franchise jobs, like appearing in Cracker and One Helsing and Alex Rider franchises. Excellent. And Harry Potter. Which is a lesser franchise and nobody knows about it. Somebody who doesn't like Harry Potter movies. Yay. Hagrid. Hello, Hagrid. Are you there? Yeah, I had no idea. Oh, the more you know. This scene ends really oddly. Like, uh, now Zugovsky scares off Bond trying to shoot everywhere and then then Bond starts talking Kiros funeral parlor four o'clock this afternoon and then that conversation of course continues much much later on when they're in a good mood in Zukovsky's office so when he starts talking you don't really know what the hell he's talking about but he's trying to now you know appeal to Zukovsky's wallet that's the way to pull on his strings to Make him cooperate with James Bond. Here is the film's information explosion scene. It's like in the living daylights when they're exchanging the diamonds. It's like in Zukovsky's office now. Out of the blue, explosion of information. 
Henrik, were you able to follow all this babble throughout this scene? Yeah, they don't give you that much information in the end after all. Well, no, they do not. And 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 a lot of the information they give you is actually quite skippable. Kinda, kinda. Bond somehow now is in the knowledge of this information that, or in the, <laughs> it could also be that Bond is basically threatening Zukovsky that if you do not cooperate with me, then. I have this little tidbit of information. There might be like 200 pounds of C4 explosives hidden in a casket and stuff happens. Your man drives the hearse in and the money is exchanged and their man drives the hearse out. Their man will be arrested with the explosives. Your man will be miraculously escaping with the money, your money. And that gets him on board. Yep, and that's something that is never actually shown in the film. So the audience members don't really do anything that substantial with all that information. Yeah, this was kind of confusing to me, this scene. Yeah, it's out of the blue. So much information. This is what was also mentioned on, on the commentary, and rightly so, that if you create this kind of a scene, and if you want in the editing booth to edit something out, you fucking can't, because then the scene would just not make sense anymore. So you have to include all of it. And there's a lot of bullshit. And I feel this scene kind of drags the film down. But yeah, okay. But what is the last line? What does it mean? Are you following this? Let me see. Bond says, I want you to set up with Janus. Tell him I'm asking about the chopper. You're gonna meet me tonight at the Grand Hotel. And Zukovsky replies, and then you and I are even and he owes me one. I don't get it. Why would Janus owe anything? Because now Zukovsky has arranged it so that Bond is going to be very closely involved and messing up the operations of the Yanis syndicate and Alec Trevelyan. So why, why would they owe a goddamn thing? It would be like, let's bomb this Sukovsky guy. So a whole lot of nothing, and Bond ends it with precisely. I feel that Prosnan's Bond's problem is that I feel his type of Bond is, has the least amount of purpose of all, probably all of the Bond actors. Like He's just some kind of, a, as discussed, like some kind of an amalgamation of all the past Bonds. Connery is Connery, Charmy and Swaggery, Moore has the humor, and Dalton is ruthless. But it just feels like Pierce Brosnan's James Bond doesn't have any fucking purpose. It's just a pretty guy playing James Bond. It's not Brosnan's fault, of course. Like The scripts are shit. They could have made some effort to explain better who this guy is, maybe. Now I feel that, that there's just nothing here. In Golden, GoldenEye does the best possible way of exposing the character of James Bond a little bit more, but after this, it's just a shit show after shit show. And to me, Brosnan was supposed to be the kind of a combination of Dalton and... or a combination of the Dalton darkness and more of that Roger Moore lightweight humorous side. So, like, he was supposed to be a dark Bond who you often cracks cracks jokes and has that sense of humor and that that sense of lightness with him even even though the situations he ends up are pretty pretty ruthless and when it comes to coden i i I think here prosnan and the film manages to pull it off the downside that happened after coden i was that prosnan's bond basically the, the jokes and the humorous aspect of, of, of his Bond got played up to a point where Brosnan's Bond basically became a one-liner machine. 
someone who only speaks in one-liners and jokes and nothing else. Yeah. Kaina, Kaina, it's really obvious in that or die another day. <clears throat> it's a weird fucking film. It's it's a weird. It's kind of a celebration film because it was the what the 40th anniversary of the series and they wanted to do something different for the fans like fan service let's do a weird james bond film and there they succeeded i don't know about anything else we get to spa crazy xenia and so much use of the doubles in this scene it's really easy to miss though you almost can't really tell the difference but there's a lot of use of doubles in this scene but they look so similar that you really can't tell unless you press this pause button Bond and Alec meet in the statue park. This was actually inspired by a real dumping ground of Soviet statues in St. Petersburg, like discarded old airbase, and which was recreated in a studio or somewhere. Yeah, some kind of a backlot then. This scene was kind of spooky. It was. Yeah. There is is a haunting quality to this scene. There is a haunting quality to quite a bunch of scenes in GoldenEye, and they use this kind of a horror logic, for example, in Severnaya base when it has kind of exploded into pieces, then Natalia is there all alone. and They give for the audience the moment to relax, as stated in the commentary track, like nothing is supposed to happen, and then the fucking roof falls off. And now, maybe something similar here, I don't know. Well, it, it does have very kind of a horror movie-esque lighting and there there are other horror movie type elements like they're like the fog that slowly creeps in from the corners of the screen and also something that amplifies the effect here is the fact that the statue park essentially it's a dumping ground for something that is lost Bond is surrounded by relics of of a country that no longer exists and the place is very like, like that 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 sense of ruin that that sense of losing something is very present in in the park and the park itself is very derelict as a as a place it's it's not a celebratory place in any way no one they kind of play that same kind of a horror tactic here because there is this Kind of a full full shot of James Bond walking sideways, and then the music stops, comes to a halt, and then there is this "Hello, James" out of complete silence. Yep. So you let the audience relax, and then it's back to the rails again. Yeah, but that that's a moment where a horror movie, like like a cheap, run of the mill Hollywood horror film, would have actually thrown the cat at you or some other form <laughs> of jump scare. <laughs> Oh, Alec, you're alive. Uh, uh, Alec? Alec. Yeah, here, Phil Mayhew, the DP, was able to contribute something, I hear. He game came up with the entrance of the Trevelyan. Uh, inspiration coming from the third man, where Orson Welles comes in a similar fashion. Uh, was it from a doorway entrance or something? I remember that, like, uh, somewhat... There is a similarity between Trevelyan's, uh, Trevelyan's entrance and, and Orson Welles' in The Third Man. And we get to Alex's sad little story about how his parents died. And we are actually given a little bit of a more personal glimpse at James Bond's history. There is the di- discussion about 
how Bond's parents died in a climbing accident. Um, I think it's in the books. But I'm not. I'm not sure. Anyway, their ha- parents have died, and the MI6 assumed that that Alec would be would have been too young to remember why they died, and that had something to do with MI6 because the the parents were part of the Lian's Cossacks as well. Was it like that? Yep. Right. So now uh, little Alec is on a revenge mission. Well, kinda sorta. He he sells his stunt off as a revenge mission, but in the end, Alec really Alec really ain't anything but a glorified thief. That thief line was probably stolen from Die Hard too, but I'm not sure. And hence Janus, the two-faced Roman god. Somebody stole one of the statues by bashing the security of the filming crew and all. <laughs> wow. A big effort. Yeah, some huge ass statue and then nothing more than a common thief. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be completely honest, I would have also tried to steal a statue from that place. H- had I been part of the crew. Like had I would I would I have been presented the opportunity, I most definitely would have seized it. I would have stolen the CCCP red kind of a logo text. That would have been so goddamn cool, cool, or or to have one of those giant Lenin heads in your back backyard. Yeah. Well, then they are a little tied up, and Natalia is furious. It's actually quite irritating scene because Natalia is screaming like crazy, and she actually did wreck her voice completely after screaming all day in this helicopter. Here we have probably the most CGI that you have ever had in a James Bond film, and it definitely is the this kind of a scene because. Well, I would say that the rockets are definitely total CGI. There is digital, there is CGI, there is real, there is studio, there is models. A lot of things together, but it's still not distracting. But oh boy, wait for die another day. 33 takes with the parachutes, with the model, because the one parachute just couldn't open on time. Now we get to sell. Great dialogue here as well. Wonder why the hell they didn't use these writers again. The dialogue is very good. Natalia explains that uh, she doesn't know Alec and says that Boris is responsible for everything, single-handedly, basically, which, of course, is not true. I'm not sure what Natalia is trying to do here. Uh, is she just Does she really believe that, or she doesn't care what she's going to reply to Bond, or or just tries to l- lie or do something? It's weird. Like, why would Boris, <laughs> Boris Krishenko single-handedly be responsible for this? Doesn't make any sense. But okay, Defense Minister Dimitri Mishkin, I have written Dimitri Pushkin, but definitely Dimitri Mishkin, barges in. Great dialogue about this. The lost art of, of interrogation. And boys with toys. James Bond gets angry. There is this Dalton vibes going on. And of course, that's what the smart baddies do. They do give the pistol of uh, James Bond back to him. I'm not sure if it's... Uh, Probably was then empty or... Anyway, gives the pistol and then they are able to escape because a chair. And off we go to the archives. There's one soldier that appears twice in this film. First, he appears in the runway, gets shot and and dies from all the suggested uh, cinematography. But he appears again in archive staircase with Urmov. I think he falls down the stairs and then he reappears again and he's shooting at Bond and Natalia, but... uh, of course, fails to shoot at them. And Tom Frankland, Mr. Frankland, this was filmed 
on the end of Peter Street in London, a financial district. London is such a huge place. Oh, it's not a village. Oh, so off we go. To the tank chase. Great scene, by the way. Hello. Yeah, is it, Henrik? <laughs> it is. It's. I. I would say when it comes to the action scenes of the film, it's. It, it is the most bullshit moment of GoldenEye, but it still doesn't lessen any way of how how fun it is. Like like Tom said, it's a great scene. Can we remind ourselves that James Bond has been hired by MI6 as a spy? <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. And he's not exactly inconspicuous when he's rolling down Saint Petersburg in a fucking tank. Yeah, well, he's sometimes inside the tank, so you can't see his face, though. Not, not, not to mention the fact that Bond also, once again, mind you, causes somewhat of a political catastrophe, because well, because he actually, while using the tank, Bond actively A, goes against the legal authorities of Russia, when he attacks and rolls over the police cars, he destroys public property and landmarks, like that statue, and he also destroys the local infrastructure when he rams the tank through buildings. Yeah, that is kind of a creepy. It's the, one of the biggest things I think about during this tank scene. Like, come on, there must be many inno- innocent people you can't possibly know if they are in there or not. Of course, the film makes the case during the chase that James Bond, of course, never kills innocent people because, well, he might roll and destroy and completely flatten one of the police cars, but then you see in the next shot that the police are completely okay and come out of the car alive. (laughs) Yeah, or or some of the buildings that Bond demolishes here when he not at all carefully drives a tank through a building. Like, what if that actually has, like, things like homes in it? People living in those homes? Like, the the possible side casualties that Bond causes in in his adventures. Like, the toll is never actually made public how many die or get injured because of Bond's antics in a public place. Well, depends how you think about it. I mean, it was shot at studio, though, so nobody got hurt. It is, but but the fil- the realism that film gives you, it's not based on studio. Yep. And in the in that sense, you know, Bond is a foreign politics nightmare, pretty much. Yeah, and it took one mile to get uh, the tank into full speed. So the timing of scenes and destroying some walls, that was really hard to get it right, because it yeah, that takes a long, long time to go through the entire mile. I found it funny that it was apparently Pepsi and Coke both that turned down the opportunity of product placement here. And instead it's Perrier when James Bond drives through those cans of beer on the street. Straightens the tie like everything is a little bit of a surface nuisance like a fly. No problemo. Then again, if you are a man who is cruising with a tank in the middle of Russia, I, I can believe that pretty much everything is just a minor nuisance to you. <laughs> and then he drives off to God knows where. Yeah, and Im- imagine them like negotiating themselves to shoot in Russia and go like, oh, well, we want to bring our own tank into the country 
and drive it on the streets of St. Petersburg (laughs) in front of a French embassy. (laughs) That would never happen. I I don't know. We are talking about Russia. Yeah, true. Yeah, so it did happen. but And I think at the time that the film was made, it was Boris Yeltsin was the president of of Russia, who was kind of an alcoholic. So it's not impossible that this would happen. No and no and now that now that you mentioned Yeltsin, Yeltsin also was one of the more lenient leaders of of Russia and so, so someone who actually put a lot of emphasis on rebuilding the ties between Russia and the rest of the West. So yeah, he failed in that. Yeah, unfortunately, one does not simply reestablish ties with the West or, or with Russia. I, I would say that that is more accurate. West is pretty easy in the end. Can somebody please laugh at my meme? Which one? One does not simply, Curry. God damn it. Pay, pay some attention, <laughs> man. Oh, God. Sean Bean's in this film, who plays Boromir, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, like, right. how, how are you not drawing the parallels here? Because I'm looking at the next scene, which is the train. Famke Janssen, she didn't have many lines in this scene when they're in the train. She's just sitting there in the background all the time, mostly. What do we know about Famke Janssen? Oh, listen, she's fantastic. She's fantastic. She, she was, is she's an ex-model. And she also played in Taken, which was a great film, I thought. And X-Men. And X-Men. And she was far more attractive, I'm sorry to say, um, back in the 90s. I've seen her somewhere without all this heavy makeup that she has in GoldenEye, and she looks like a completely different person, you know, like less of a menacing <laughs> lady in those films. You know, it's a shame that um, Xena Bonatop is a Bond villain, because she would have made a great Bond girl, I think. Ooh, she she could have been like the Halle Berry character in Diana the yeah. instead. Maybe. It is a shame she's really crazy, because she definitely has the looks to be a Bond girl. And the acting, acting chops. I mean, I'm happy that she is a baddie. She pulls it off perfectly. And she's a great actress, yeah, you're true. And uh, and we've already seen the rapport between Bond and Zeno on the top, and it's yeah. perfect. Like every line delivery, for example, this, he's gonna derail us. <gasps> In the train, there's a deleted scene when Urumov complains something about uh, Boris practicing or removing some bugs or whatever the hell. It was completely useless, and they removed it. The tanker gets ahead of the train, and I never actually thought about it until... Tom Franklin mentioned it, like, he gets ahead of the train because the track must be making a loop before they get out of the depot. That makes sense. But many people just say, okay, the tank teleported, and this is impossible. Tank explodes into pieces. Train wins tank. Train has been completely destroyed. Somehow it stays on the rails after hitting the tank, and they are perfectly able to escape with the helicopter, which is completely intact, and so are all the people of the train. Who also managed to run away from the train off-screen and are not killed when the entire train blows up. Yep. But am I the only one who is pumped by the decision that this is the moment where Bond actually uses his gadgets and uses that that laser wristwatch that he has? Mm, No. No, I think it's appropriate because there's no other way to get out there probably realistically, so you have to be unrealistic to get uh, back to the realistic. I I don't know, because I kind of was missing 
the moment where Bond would have come up with some other way of escaping. Like, figured well, something out about the train that would have allowed him to escape. Well, he uses his brain powers to push the lid down by kicking it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of, I, I, I didn't know that the double O in 007 was the goddamn IQ score. <laughs> but uh, speaking of brain power, here we have... Tom Franklin. <laughs> 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 well, that's uh, just another level of, of being able to make fun of yourself. <laughs> uh, but Natalia does not figure out what the password would be. Like, what was the description? You you sit sit on it, but you can't take it with you. Yeah. So what the hell else could it be than chair? Yes, the. It's kind of like a duh moment for me. A uh, kinda, yeah. Because the the ass, which is Natalia's case here, it is something that you actually take with you. <laughs> you take the ass, but well, you can also take the chair. If you really want to, but you know. yeah, I thought that I was taking it really like literal. You can't really take a chair with you. Speaking of brain powers, part three. What the hell is Bond doing with the switches on the top of the train ceiling? And then he switches his attention to Natalia. It's like, what, what, what are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? And he seems to be like just punching the ceiling. Well, he tries to kick the ceiling's ass. You might have been right about that IQ in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Speaking of also License to Kill references, which I think this movie is pulling off, there is again this yes sir line. This gag returns again. It's in License to Kill twice or three times, here again twice or three times, in the plane and at the train. But yeah, it could be nothing. But there are similarities between these movies. And finally, we get kissing, if somebody was looking for it. And uh, lip service, great line. All right. Moving on to the next one. So, car ride and Wade. There was a 73 years old pilot who did the landing with the plane in front of the BMW. They tried it about 10 times. Apparently, Jack Wade CIA is working in St. Petersburg and in Cuba, for whatever reason. Anyway, he has arranged it so that the authorities, quote, don't know anything about him in Cuba, about Bond in Cuba. And then we get to the beach where we have, again, quite unusual James Bond moment where Natalia is giving a hard time for James Bond for playing the Mako, Mako man. It's a good scene, albeit possibly kind of out of place and too short. It doesn't get pushed enough, but at least it is there. I enjoy it. For some people, uh, it was con- confusing that it's there. For me, no. And also, unfortunately, once again, something that does not pay off in the long game. Right. Because the point that Natalia makes about Bond really is quite good one. Bond's lifestyle and and well, his nature as a government assassin is something that it, it does doom Bond to stay forever lonely. Right, that he does, that he does. New woman in every story. Do you guys wonder like what happens to these women after the story's finished? I like, would like to know the same thing, like to connect the dots between the movies. What happened? The history of the James Bond girls. Yeah, just pretend the story continues. Like, what happened to all these women? Do they just split up after the mission is accomplished, or do they go for drinks afterwards? Or 
Oh, well. Maybe that, that would be the Terminator Genesis moment of the James Bond franchise to cast a new James Bond and then just tie up all the ends and tell the stories of the ladies from all the years that have gone past. In the future, on the final ever James Bond, will we see a conclusion to all this? Will we finally see him settle down with a second wife? I, yeah. I, I would believe that the final James Bond film they will ever make, it is one where basically the bad guys are all the Bond's previous women who have come together to do, to destroy Bond as a payback. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of women. And that's a lot of women. Like that, That's an entire army. It's most it could actually be the biggest army James Bond has ever faced. Speaking of James Bond marrying, it it's starting to look like in No Time to Die, this James Bond will marry now the Magdalene, Madeline, whatever the case is, this Spectre character. Really? Yeah. Yeah, really? they kind of killed the bitch off. They killed the bitch off, but as far as I'm hearing the rumbling. Could it be kind of a repetition of On Her Majesty's Secret Service? Yeah, so it doesn't really count. Huh. Doesn't really count? No. That doesn't count really marrying or and does not really count as a big plot point for James. Because it, it kind of is the Vesper scenario from Casino, once again, if that yeah. end, end, ends up happening. Yeah. James Bond falling head over heels for a woman and actually making some kind of life decision. I'm gonna quit the secret service for you. And then the lady gets killed and it's back to business with James. It's a good song. Head over heels. Abba. Okay. The most important thing to note about the beach scene is that there was a, there was a big goo in between the mouths of Pierce Brosnan and uh, Isabella Skorukko when they deattached their mouths in the kissing scene. <laughs> and this big goo was removed in the digital releases on the DVD and Blu-ray. Very important. Nice. Okay. <laughs> let's get to let's get to bed. So <laughs> they plan to have Natalia and Bond in in the act on screen first. Kind of like what Halle Berry and Pierce Brosnan were doing in Die Another Day. But Campbell then had reservations about it and they made it like a post love making scene. But of course you have it in Die Another Day. Halle Berry's character and Bond are sort of actually having sex, so they did it there. Flight, shot in the Dominican Republic, the big establishing. And Natalia is leaning on Bond after the rocket hits the plane. So it's kind of like, okay, that's natural, I would suppose. She's not a secret agent, so that's okay. Then there's a fight with Xenia, very strong character, female character. Peter Lamont had recreated the jungle in the studio. And Henry can it also on this because of the, there's this hallucinatory-like image of Bond looking up the helicopter. There is something Apocalypse Now-esque yes. in that moment. Correct. Wow. Yeah, it's it's uh, inspired by Apocalypse Now, actually. It's kind of unclear to me how Xena on the top died. Did she break her back in this? or Because she was kind of flung into the tree. The neck is pulled too far back. Okay. I would say. Also, that was more brutal in the original guts, but they had to... Soften it up for the ratings. Ah. Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a reference or borrowed from Martin Sheen lying on the bed, seeing visions of the helicopter in Apocalypse Now. Xenia was meant to be looking a little bit Nazi here. I can see that. Headbutt was also cut for the censors with Natalia. There were discussions whether to keep in the 
she always did enjoy a good squeeze line. And then Michael G. Wilson was like, hey, what happened to that that shot? I want to have the joke back. And they were like, all right, let's put it back. What do you think about the joke? Uh, I thought it was quite lame. Yep. L- lame being the key word. I kind of always enjoyed that joke. Like, I'm, I'm not advocating ta- to for taking it out of the picture, but it just, it, it just doesn't land with me. Yeah. It, but, it, it didn't hit the spot. But it's yep. also one of those moments where you, I think you have to, it's like audience is expecting it, and I think there has to be something to move on to the next scene. That's true, but it still wasn't funny. Hmm. Okay, then. No can do. Cradle. Alec wants to set London as the target for Goldeneye. And after Bond sets up the mines, he throws his gun towards the guards, followed by a weird, weird cut. So we see Brosnan being pushed towards the ceiling for inspection, whether he has any arms or not. But then they got to the next shot, and he is facing the wall or one of those tanks. And uh, that that's kind of weird. And when this dish or the pool for the dish is being drained, it's actually the motion of the water plate backwards, if you look at it. I'm not sure why it was so, but it is. Like a 50 feet model, 1,000 feet dish for reals. Funny thing that Alan Cumming said about his... He felt that he's kind of the Bond boy of the film because he's showing more skin since he was being in shorts all the time. Alec shares his master plan. So Alec also... Oh no, this is the mind detonation plot and stops the mind detonation and explains his entire plot. This is the moment. Like wants to seal a bank, make transfers and do the moments before the gold and I will destroy trace of all the transactions. And stock markets and credit ratings, criminal records. Good idea. Let's go ahead. Everything digital gone. And I'm not really sure how this would have been localized properly because you can't do it for the entire planet. You need to have it really localized. Was it the plan then to go for only London? Or I guess, but still. It's just London for the uh, retribution. Yeah. But is it really? Is it really, because yeah. because I, I, I kind of get the notion that Bond is implying that it's once again one of those worldwide plans. And not, not, just, not just one attack at London or Britain. Right, and uh, let's talk, talk about this. Uh, little Alec will try to avenge and settle a score from 50 years ago. And then Alec just goes like, oh, Bond, please spare me the Freud. And there's this great quote about the... Silent voices of women coming from the very original drafts of Goldeneye. The vodka drowns out the voices of the the screams of the women he's killed. Right. Yep. Alec and Bond are fighting. The actors themselves, pretty much everything in it when they get to this small room in the dish. And and, uh, as we discussed with Mr. Franklin before recording, when Bond falls down the ladder and does the... which I can't replicate, it was for real. He hurt his hand, he hurt his back, and yet Campbell was shouting like back to him that, we need another take! And Brosnan <laughs> was like, you'll get one more and that's it, which was the only moment, only moment apparently during the filming when <laughs> Brosnan got pissed off during the filming. Sean Bean is killed when he's dropped against the green screen. Yeah, uh, I have something to say about this. Yeah, That guy would not be alive after that fall. Yeah. I, I think so too. Yeah. It was such a I huge fall. 
and he was still awake. Okay, he was still conscious, which is kind of ridiculous. <clears throat> kind of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very much ridiculous. And kind of even unnecessary when when you look at it, because the only only thing that the film gains from Alec surviving the original fall is that Alec kind of gets to see how the rest of the satellite dish falls on top of him. And that, that's yeah. kind of a, like like you you give give the main bad guy the moment where he can see that oh yeah now I'm going to die but it it does not serve a real function in the narrative because Alec has already been defeated. And Starro Blofeld actually suffered a similar fate when he was dropped down the chimney, you know, from the <laughs> helicopter. <laughs> in the otherwise pretty realistic film, and we didn't see. A clip of Ernst Blofeld surviving down the chimney shaft. Yeah, because he didn't survive. Yeah, and Blofeld also was spawned venging a personal grief. So it, so that fall was also for James. Yeah, but Bond has this tendency that whenever he drops someone off from from a great height, it always is to settle a personal score. <laughs> like if you if you be spawned <laughs> off. Whatever you do, avoid heights. Yeah. Did you guys have a flashback to Afghanistan? At the Living Daylights. Yeah. The plane and the boot. Weren't the 80s kind of uh, like a point in time in the James Bond franchise where they wanted to make a lot of high falls for the baddies and a lot of plane sequences? Action movies all together was kind of the moment in action movies. I don't think... A single Bond villain has died when dropped from a great height. Because we see Jaws, who fell from the plane <laughs> and dropped into the circus tent. He survived. <laughs> and Stavro Blofeld, of course, survived because we see him in future films. <laughs> um, <laughs> Alec survived, just so. Like, like I said, I would love to see this kind of a tie-up film that explains everything that happened between the films to tie it up with the reboot of Casino Royale and Daniel Craig's films. Well, you you can't have that. You can't have that with Daniel Craig's films because Daniel Craig's films kind of tie themselves up in, in Spectre. Hmm. Like it, it, it's a, the, Daniel Craig really is is the is universe of its own. This this soft reboot universe of Bondism. I had flashbacks of Max Zoring falling, falling from the Golden Gate. Oh, there's so many examples. Also in Octopussy, when what I only remember as Kapir Bedi, the actual actor name. No, it's Gobinda is the uh, character. Falls from the plane, and Bedi dies with the plane. These just unrealistic, you know. I don't know, and I don't think Bond would survive the missile that shot out of the lake. You know. Uh, exactly. <laughs> It would be in pieces, million pieces. But he did. But he did. That oh, the I missile guess. didn't explode because that's how missiles work. <laughs> yeah. Now let's just assume that it hit it a little bitsy witsy and then just flew off into the sky, which it didn't do. This is science fiction at its best. Fact, I hear. Facts. <laughs> well, we, we are dealing with James Bond. This is all science facts. <laughs> but the film ends with. Jack Wade, CIA, saying, maybe you too would like to finish your debriefing at Guantanamo. Which is really fucking obvious to, today. Uh, like. 
to be waterboarded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, is it the way that Bond is waterboarding the lady, or is the lady waterboarding Bond? <laughs> yeah, maybe it's like waterboarding, whatever that would mean. Yeah, this joke didn't age well. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. Altogether, Guantanamo as a plot device didn't age that well. What what does it even mean? What's the implication that they're have, having some kind of a groupie time there at Guantanamo? That they are going to have a personal interrogation room where they can fuck in Guantanamo. Oh, God. But, but, ah. Yeah, yeah. While, while being surrounded by the Taliban. That's creepy. So, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he runs into his his old friend, you know, the uh, Taliban riders. Yeah, he's going to be, be in a cell ne- right next to them. Straight <laughs> up, with a twist. Oh, hey, it's me again. <laughs> <laughs> Campbell, director, thought that since every vehicle Bond enters blows up, as implication goes here, he wanted to have the helicopter that Bond and Natalia to blow up in the end as well. <laughs> I think that was a total joke, but it's really funny. Would have been hilarious. Would have sealed the film. <laughs> and it would have allowed a great opening for the next one. Oh my god. <laughs> but without further ado, your favorite performance. <clears throat> Boris, for sure. He, I think Boris is fantastic. And that killed the discussion. Yep. To me, it's it's actually, uh, and this might be, I, I don't know if, if this is weird, but it's Famke Jansen as Wet Dream. Mm. Wet Dream. <laughs> well, she most definitely is. God damn it! Like the amount of uh, amount of boners I have had with Golden Eye because of her. Really? Okay. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Do you like okay. being crushed? I I can't say. Uh, as someone who has almost experienced it, although not in between tides of a woman, mm. but in in an in the industrial accident, no, I can't say I am a fan. <laughs> but but I'm most definitely I am a fan of Famke Janssen, and especially in Golden Eye. Yeah, she's good. Yeah, amazing performance, Famke Janssen. Mm. Mm. Uh, Henrik was not game. For the leading lady in the Living Daylights with Marion Dabo, but you are all hot for Famke Janssen. I see. Uh huh. God, but I, 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 if if you remember, I also thought that the ladies in the License to Kill were hotter. Yeah, you like those. I fancied those. Okay, okay. Getting better and better. Mm. Favorite scene. Oh, mm. I thought the casino scene was really classy. I think it had something really good to it. Yeah, like the innuendos. And the cigar as well. It's kind of this weird blend of femininity and masculinity. <sighs> All I can think of is the sex scene at Manticore, so it's just so weird. Yeah, so, that's weird. Yeah. It's his bald head that makes it weird, though. <laughs> <laughs> What's the problem with bald heads? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's his eyes and it's his head. You 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 can see you you can see the knight glittering back from the bald head. <laughs> it just kind of makes me sick a little bit. Henrik. <laughs> uh, well, the only thing I can properly think of is is Famke Jansen, but I, I guess my favorite scene is 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 Bond meeting Alec in the lost 
coming as a monument graveyard. I thought that scene was lacking, and I'll tell you why. If if you thought your friend was dead, and 16 years later, or whatever, nine years, he shows up alive, you'd be kind of like, kind of freaked out. But Bond didn't seem that, you know, perturbed by the whole thing. No. That, that is true. There is, of course, a possibility that Bond has seen the trailer before, before the film, <laughs> <laughs> and knows the major plot twist. But uh, I also, I, I must confess, I did find it a, a bit lacking, a bit lame that when Bond finally meets with Alec, the only thing he can actually say is, is why, and does yeah, like... not show any kind of a shock for the fact that Alec is still alive. Especially seeing how how Bond's friend here is is Sean Bean. <laughs> but what the hell is your favorite quote from Golden Eye? Very quotable film. I'm invincible. <laughs> I, I was I I was certain that that one of the one of the two of you will actually pick that one. Did you guys notice the IBM advertisements? No, I guess not. Okay. I guess for me, it, there's so many good lines, but. I especially enjoy the, hey, Bond, do you do any gardening? But I could go with, oh, please, James, spare me the Freud. I might as well ask you for the vodka martinis that have silenced the screams of all the men you've killed. Or if you find forgiveness in the arms of all those willing women for all the dead ones you failed to protect. And of course, welcome to the party, my dear. He's such a sarcastic ass, is is Bormir. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the James Bond, what an unpleasant surprise. What kind of a surprise was it? Like, the dude has been unable to kill the bastard like 500 times at this point. But they are all good lines, still. They but are. The, the, this is the film where where the bad guy has one of the best bad guy one-liners. True, true. Henrik. Well, I, I go with, with, with life wisdoms from the film... That's the trouble with the world today. No one takes time to do proper sinister interrogation anymore. Um, Le Fleur, I think his name is, from Casino Royale. Uh, what's yeah, his no name? one does proper inter- interrogations anymore. The Lost Art. But, ball, but uh, Bond gets his balls whacked in Casino mm-hmm. Royale. God yeah, damn it. Totally different era. La Chief. Well, it, it is kind of a tying it back to what was again Bond's line here. Because be, be, before starting to bounce off from Bond's balls, Le Chiffre also goes into a tantrum of, about how basically everybody is doing torture way too complicated than it has to be. <laughs> that that in, 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 in its core, torture really is pretty simple stuff. Yeah, I think being hit in the balls pretty much covers it. Uh-huh. But uh, and that might also be the most thorough treatment that Bond's balls have actually gotten in the franchise. Uh, I remember following the news. There, die another day came out, and there started to be a lot of this ramblings and focus again on the next James Bond film. And and I remember Pierce Brosnan being very very much game on doing Casino Royale because he liked the story, and then. Quentin Tarantino was maybe considered, but then the producers said no, and then Brosnan was really disappointed about that, if I am to trust the interviews that I read, and that's the idea that I got, and he was kind of really pissed off that they didn't go with Tarantino, 
And I remember that from his career as Bond, he also was kind of quite pissed about some actor or actress decisions that they made for the franchise. He would like somebody act opposite of him in Tomorrow Never Dies or what happened. It would not happen. Do you guys think that Brosnan should have done Casino Royale? No. Maybe not. Like, I I, I don't hate Brosnan's Bond. I'm pretty much game with, with his presentation of, of the character. And even with the later entries in the franchise, I do think that Brosnan's Bond is one of the better elements of those films. Yeah. Like, so, so what, what hurts Brosnan's Bond is... It's not Brosnan, it's the material he's been given. But, Definitely. Yeah. And but the thing with Casino is that I, I do think that Casino was so different in its tone and 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 with the type of film it was and with the type of bond it wanted to present that I do I don't see Brosnan pulling it off. It could have been really interesting to see it. Could have been his Best James Bond film of all time, but I perhaps can understand it from a producer standpoint that they didn't renew the contract of Brosnan. He wasn't fired. He wasn't ever fired in technical sense. He was. He had been signed for four films, and uh, was there an option for fifth? But then the contract just ran out. Maybe after the film that is Die Another Day, that could have been the best possible de- decision to make to. To reboot the franchise or do something new with somebody new. Would it be favorite kill? Uh, Xenia, sex death. The exploding Parker pen. Yep, yep. Oh, S- same for me. The moment when Bond uses his pen to bomb the entire Apple customer support. <laughs> Service desk in flames. I explode. So, if you were James Bond, would you? What kind of approach would would you bring into it? Into what? Into murdering Apple's customer support. Okay. First shot that comes to mind. Hmm. The control room at the end of the film. In the dish. Fumke Jansen squeezing the body. Yeah, I'm afraid uh, it's the bald admiral falling out of the cupboard, dead, but <laughs> kind of, but with kind of a smile on his face. He kind of steals the show in this film. Yeah, yeah I don't like his face. <laughs> Me, me neither, but they do come with Funky Chances tights, so... Fair enough. What took you out of Golden... Uh... Uh, it was probably the lame death of Alec. Hmm. I think it was great. I mean, at least dropping him. He could have yeah. died just there. Yeah, that was good, but he had, but he had to die, though. You know what I mean? Uh, I would go with some of the middle part, the blah, blah, blah with Zukovsky about the Lienz Cossacks and Natalia wandering around the city in churches and, eh, it's kind of slugging there. Henrik. I, on my end, I really did not have a moment where I dropped off with the film. Like, if, if I would have to say something, well, maybe, and this is extremely strong, maybe, it could could be parts of Bones tank cruising, but I I didn't drop off with the film even in that sequence. Okay, I I think it's a well executed film. There's good dialogue. I just feel that sometimes it kind of drops me, and I think it's a kind of a boring sometimes. Okay, because I had none of those problems with Code and I. Yeah, even though 
I consider it, uh, it as the Brussels best. What pulled you in? On the top size pulled me in. God damn it, that ain't God honest truth. But but if if we have shined too much light on Anatop's ties, it would be that damn opening dam. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I get on with the film right from the beginning. It's a really great opening. It, it is, it is. And, and the film does not lose me after that opening. Like, there, there, are, there are things that I can nitpick and things things I can whine about in, in a film podcast, but... The film still doesn't lose me. Like I'm, I'm not against. Well, technically, not. N- I'm not against anything in the film. Mm. What pulled me in? Well, I think like the biggest high points are really the pre-credit sequence, and frankly, I guess the title sequence itself is. That's where the biggest boner is going on. And Tina Turner. We had not discussed Tina Turner and Bono and the Edge. <laughs> Bono. <laughs> Yeah, Bono and the Edge uh, gave the music for Tina Turner. And actually, there's a demo floating around where the, the GoldenEye song is sung by the, the Bono. <laughs> Bono? Yeah. Mm. That didn't give me a Bono. <laughs> mm. I think it was a better joke than the squeeze, though. How would you terrorize this film? Scissors of Sacrilege. Yeah, I'm with Tom here. Like, more Famke Jansen. Yeah. That, that's the, that's the on, only obvious addition that I would make to the film. Guys, uh, the trick is to quit while you're still ahead. Yeah, she kind of makes the film, I think. <laughs> oh, uh... I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't know if, if, if the film comes to conclusion because Famke Jansen is in it, but I most certainly do. But <clears throat> if I should not just be gushing over Famke Jansen here, some of the changes maybe to do with the film and these are extremely minor ones would be something like let Alec die right after Bond drops him not to let him survive the fall but that that's kind of a, like I mostly wouldn't touch Goldeneye that much okay I would start to kind of restructure the middle part I would like to give it a bit of a kick in the ass to make it moving a little bit faster. I would change the composer of the film, probably. Or I would try try to do some kind of a combination of Eric Serra soundtrack and then some, keep, bring some other guy on board who even remotely resembles the John Barry sound or something like that. Interesting, by the way, how in Eric Serra soundtrack there is nothing, that there is no Bond theme tune when he is driving with the tank in the streets of St. Petersburg. So that was added later on, and some other dude who did that, because they felt that this soundtrack does not have enough the James Bond tune, so somebody had to step in and save that moment. And uh, maybe it could be a little bit that color, more colorful. It's a little bit uh, gray. You really know you're watching Goldeneye. When... I hate this question. <laughs> because I have to come up with something stupid. I'm not going to say anything. I'll give no answer to this. <laughs> okay, so we have the first rebellion against you really know you're watching question. You really know you're watching Goldeneye when you see James Bond attack a guy in a toilet and drops into it like a poop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you really know you're watching Goldeneye when you buy an iPhone 
and realize that even still you will never be invincible. <laughs> you can be invincible in the video game. If you play Orcho, like all the pros do. With cheats. <laughs> uh, sorry, why is Orcho being Goldeneye? It, it's one of the extra characters that you unlock when you finish the game with like certain difficulty levels in certain time. Uh-huh. To live in daylights. Uh-huh. Three adjectives to describe Goldeneye. Dark. Scary. Gray. Slow. 90s. I, I guess... Mine are dark, exciting, and progressive. Pretty much because I gave progressive also to License to Kill, which does a lot of the same stunts, or, or a lot of the same things that, that Golden Eye does. That being kind of, kind of a being more progressive with the ladies of the film, not making them such of a blank slates, and, well, with with, with the act of Calling the person of Bond into question. But without crying at the pool. Like the ladies doing License to Kill. Yeah, yeah, we, without that. But I still am not faulting the film for that. Like, I, I still do see that moment as, as one of the more progressive Bond moments in the end. Yeah, but like, watch I, like, like I said, like I said, the magic in that moment... And this is, once again, this is extremely minor detail, which is not in your face in any way, but it, it is the fact that in, in license, in the end, during that moment, Bond jumps after the woman. Yeah, I was kind of wondering why they actually abandoned the helicopter at the end. They could have just, you know, landed the helicopter perhaps somewhere, but nah, they just let it float and crash. Well, yeah, I mean, la- la- land the helicopter and sex happens. That is the die another day route. Watch test. What did you look at your watch during the film? No. No? Would you recommend Goldeneye? Most fucking definitely. Absolutely. Oh. It's it's Brosnan's best. Altogether, it's pretty damn good Bond film. It's pretty damn good action adventure action spy movie. So, yeah, in in all regards, I do recommend Codenite. It is one of the Bond films that, that brings up some of the problems with Bond, Bond's character. And I do feel that the film is all the more powerful, powerful because of it. Uh, yeah, this is one of those James Bond films where the crew behind it are actually awake doing it. And not just falling into the repetitive bullshit moments. This 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 is one of the high point moments of the James Bond history. Still, uh, there are other examples like Goldfinger, I guess, obviously. But then the follow up attempts to get back to the rails, which are obvious. The Spy Who Loved Me is one, and then there is, well, The Living Daylight in a sense. License to Kill is an experiment in the franchise. Then you have Goldeneye, where they have to get everything right because it's a new Bond and they want to introduce to the 90s and it has to work or they might even burn. But then you have Tomorrow Never Dies and Jesus Christ. Mm. But Bond, altogether, the Bond franchise, it, when you look at it, like we have are now looking at it in a franchise perspective, it starts to look more and more like a training ground for screenwriters, where they Kinda. Where the roller coaster ride goes like that, you you start and you hit a high point, really fucking high point, mm. and the franchise is stronger than ever because of it. 
And then movie by movie, you just, you know, you drop in quality. You, you start to get scripts that more and more starts to look like, like it's someone's first draft. So someone has just gotten into screenwriting and this is kind of like script number three or script number one they produce for movie studio and that gets filmed. And the entire franchise drops so low that they are in the low point and the entire future of the franchise is called into question. At which point they once again, they they put someone who understands what the fuck he's doing on the helm and they hit another high mark. And then it once again it starts to drop in quality until we are in, at rock bottom. And then it's then it's golden eye, and the franchise is once again saved. And then happens the rest of Brosnan run. We are at the hollow point, and then it's Casino Royale. Like it, it's it's kind of a, like the franchise is this beast that gets gets brought back up onto its feet whenever it's almost dead. Yeah. And then, then you know, the screenwriters just come back up and starts hitting it with bats. Yeah, it's Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. I was never a big fan of them. They never let go of these guys. I still can't for the life of me understand why. And it seems that every time that they hit some kind of a high point with a Neil Purvis, Robert Wade written James Bond film, they have to have some kind of external help to smoothen out, to polish it. And that's... Also the case on Casino Royale. Let's see, it's, it will be interesting how will be the now suggested swan song of, of Daniel Craig in the last film, which might, may not, or may be the last film of his. Anyway, yeah, I would recommend GoldenEye. Still one of the best. Tom? Yes, I would. All right. Yeah, that's you. Fine then. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Anything else, or should I... Do a bungee jump out of the laboratory. Well, you you can you can let me have the rope and then do the jump. Oh, uh, I'm we, just we, we can we, we can we can do this for science. Just to be certain, does falling from a great height actually kill you? We have to try this in order to actually nitpick properly. Code and I. Looks like Tom, you're going to be my co-host in the next episode. <laughs> yeah, and when it comes to James Bond, next time we're going to. We're going to analyze this, 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 this. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> why, why, did you, why did you do that? You know, it's, not well, only am I not looking forward to doing the podcast because it's just such a shit film, <laughs> but but I don't even want to watch the film. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100% in not wanting to watch the film. It's and terrible. any listener who has the same feelings, fear not. You can just listen to our podcast and complaining about the entire film, which starts off kind of nice, but then kind of winds up in the... Well, you will see. The next okay. there, there, there's a lot to say about the way how the film starts. Here's the podcast. It's shit. Don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> something, something, Vin Diesel. <laughs> oi, oi, oi. Name's Jim Bond. British assassin. But next week. Until then. Oh.